Hey, David. Hey, Tim. What's up? For the podcast today, we'll be talking about the TV movie The Day After, where a global nuclear war devastates local communities in Kansas. Since most nuke movies normally just destroy big cities like New York and Los Angeles, I guess it's only fair that small-town America finally gets its turn at a nuclear apocalypse. Well, Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear nonproliferation for a living. I'm joined today in the podcast studio over Zoom with my special guest, David Craig, Clinical Associate Professor of Communications at the University of Southern California, Fight On where he teaches graduate courses about media industries, management, and production. He researches and writes about a new set of media industries based on how creators, vloggers, influencers, YouTubers, gamers, live streamers, and the like operate off of social media platforms globally and in China. And this is really cool. He's also an Emmy-nominated producer with his fingerprints on 30-plus films, TV shows, web series, documentaries, and stage productions. Most of his productions foreground social issues, such as the day, like those in The Day After intended to reach the largest audience and often distributed for use in the classroom after they are aired. Welcome, David. Hey, Tim. This is exciting to have you here because you are working on a book project where you will discuss some of the behind-the-scenes production of the movie The Day After, which we're here to talk about. This is uh, a movie that had a, quite a big legacy on the nuclear arms race and on the American public. But uh, you wouldn't necessarily know about it these days because TV movies aren't as big of a thing these days for most of viewing audiences. But it was back on November 20th in 1983 when it was shown on the ABC channel. It was watched for its initial broadcast by over 100 million people. Pretty substantial of course, there were only, what, three or four television stations at the time, but still, it's quite a big deal, particularly for a movie about a full-scale nuclear war, that instead of focusing on some of the normal players you see in that, like the president or the military, this focuses on characters that are average citizens uh, of America, when it really is literally average because it takes place in this almost exact geographical center of the United States in Lawrence, Kansas. And we see doctors, uh, people who are teachers and farmers, as well as a few people who are the launch silo uh, ICBM officers. And this is really the movie that helped shape public thinking in America in the 1980s about uh, the dangers of nuclear war. And because it's a big moment in TV history, I'm really glad that you're here because I've been dreading covering this movie for a really long time. It's a big deal. It scared Ronald Reagan when he did a, an early preview of it at Camp David. Uh, he wrote in his diary that the movie was powerfully done, very effective, and left me greatly depressed. Hopefully this conversation does not leave anyone depressed because we're going to get into the movie and the plot here. But David, what is your origin story with The Day After? Why does it inspire you to uh, to watch this movie, I'm sure, as many times as you have, and then to write then research this particular story? Well, I'm inclined to use the old Steve Martin joke. I was born at an early age and, and go <laughs> way back to the origin story as well. But um, when it comes to this particular project, I have been obsessed with the bomb throughout my career as a uh, producer. And I had initially convinced History Channel to uh, give us some seed money to develop this thing called Documation, which was kind of a machinima approach of taking gameplay elements and telling history. And the first thing we did 
was recreate Trinity, the dropping, the, the development, the launch of the first atomic bomb. Um, it didn't get on History Channel, but I'm super proud of the concept and the idea, which I've mm -hmm. shared with you. So you've seen how we kind of mashed these different uh, elements together to try to tell history for a generation of, of people who are now learning about history through gameplay. And that led to a uh, convincing a publisher to produce the graphic novel about Trinity, which has gone on to multiple reprints. It's pretty much a standard now in a lot of classrooms, uh, high school, junior high level around the, the country. Targeting the story that I've been obsessed with since reading Richard Rhodes, but has now been made for children and young people who learn their history through visual media. So gameplay and graphic novels. But then I'm still an old school TV movie guy and I was developing a series on Los Alamos. Mm. Um, and we were out there pitching the series when we read in the trades that Manhattan mm. got, got picked up. And I'm like, oh, all right, well, at least the story's getting told, right? So I was thrilled about that, if not frustrated that it wasn't gonna be one of mine. Then I met Brandon Stoddard because I was doing my dissertation um, and was interviewing him about a totally different project, but I knew what he had done with the day after. So I wasn't going to give up that opportunity to ask him a bunch of questions and discovered so much about the drama behind the scenes of making the day after. Everything from death threats and having to relocate his family to... Oh, wow. um, to having to go on 60 Minutes the night before the movie aired up against Jerry Falwell debating the merits of nuclear <laughs> war. And I'm like, what is the head of TV movies doing on 60 Minutes with Jerry Falwell? I mean, the whole thing was beyond fascinating. So I started to develop that as a limited series, scripted docudrama about the making of The Day After. I got Nick Meyer attached to write and and direct and we um we this went out the and director of the TV director movie. of the mm -hmm. day after yeah and uh, he had his own stories that were equally as hair raising and fascinating i'm like this is better than the movie okay <laughs> and then my, my academic stuff kicked in with me um, getting pulled into this whole other huge project of writing a bunch of books about social media and creators and influencers and chinese wong hong and then two years ago, I was just having breakfast with a friend who's a literary agent, and she's asking, what, what are your Hollywood projects? And I just ran through a few, and I, I ran through this Making of Day After project, and she goes, I'll sell the book. And I said, who's going to write it? <laughs> and she goes, you are. I'm like, I'm not a writer. I'm an academic. <laughs> I don't, I'm not a, write, I'm not a writer, screenwriter. I'm a producer. And she goes, write the book and hopefully find a publisher that sees the book as a much larger morality tale and metaphor for the the ever ongoing battles between who gets to tell the stories that drive our world and our society and this was just one example of of just a really incredible i mean the the battle between hollywood and dc over this film is 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 epic and that's really what the book's about I'm really glad you're here to to delve more into that because it's such a fascinating uh, movie. Even if you had not known any of the background of this and you just kind of watched the film itself, you can tell there was a lot of thought put into this. People uh, who wrote this movie, Edward Hume, put a lot of research into this. One of my sources, I found the list of like biography of things that went into the research that they put out to the press. I don't know if you do that as much these days, but that would actually help my job out as someone who tries to figure out how nuclear weapons are portrayed and what people have had built into their screenplay and things. Uh, but some of the sources are sources that uh, that I've read You know, when I was studying these topic areas, things like Jonathan Schell's The Fate of the Earth, which is my favorite book on this particular subject. 
Project, as well as uh, Nuclear Madness by Helen Caldicott. And the the big thing that I saw here, you know, when you interviewed, you know, Brandon Stoddard, you know, he talked about originally he wanted to do something, quote unquote, apolitical, a uh, four hour miniseries on nuclear war. He was inspired, I guess, after watching The China Syndrome, which is about a nuclear power accident. He wanted to do um, a movie about uh, nuclear war, about what people's lives would be like after a nuclear war and quote, not what would it would be like in the president's bunker or in the war room. And I think they get that uh, done here pretty well. Um, so I'm really also glad you interviewed Nicholas Meyer because my, my thing I know about Nicholas Meyer was he, I think he directed Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my normal podcast co-host here, Gabe, uh, who wasn't able to make it today, he's a big Star Trek guy, so he'll get a kick out of this. Uh, he was also wrote Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, which has some a little bit of nuclear things in there with, um, I believe, Chekhov running around uh, asking for nuclear ves- vessels and where those are at. Excuse me, sir. Can you direct me to the naval base in Alameda? It's where they keep the nuclear vessels. Nuclear vessels. A little bit more context here. The movie's cast is so interesting. It's got a bunch of big name actors today, if you look at the cast, but really the only one that wasn't a rising star or someone who was really early in their career was Jason Robards, uh, who plays the one of the Doctor characters here, but he he's also had a little bit of nuclear background. Uh, he was a character in A Boy and His Dog, which is a, a weird, weird nuke movie. Steve Gutenberg and John Lithgow had some early roles here. John Lithgow was also in The Manhattan Project, which we've covered on the podcast here, and some another great cast members here that in small parts Joe Beth Williams William Allen Young and the fascinating thing is and as we'll talk more and more about this later 65 of the 80 speaking parts in this movie were cast locally from the community of Lawrence Lawrence Kansas is if as much of a character in this as Steve Gutenberg really part of it was the exigencies of television movie production mm-hmm. they uh you rarely ever get to actually make a movie in the location that the movie is set this was one of those rare instances and this is the 80s where that was more viable and before all all of the co-production funding came up and you know i've made movies about florida shot in montreal in the yeah. middle of this winter so say, um, it's, it was it in vancouver because uh, vancouver yeah, montreal, exactly. yeah. Atlanta i've literally days. been to every province of canada making tv <laughs> movies the, the worst was when i made a movie about george washington crossing delaware and the new jersey travel office wanted to show the movie and i said happy to <laughs> by the way you know we shot at outside toronto and they're like Never mind. (laughs) So so this is one of those rare instances where the movie set in a location for a very clear reason explained in the movie, but then they actually got to shoot it there. And in doing so, it was also just an, uh, an expense thing, which is, you know, for a lot of the speaking parts, they could cast locally. And they went to the drama uh, professor at university of Kansas and said, who do you have to recommend? And what was, I think also equally fascinating was the, um, the fact that people who had been very actively engaged around what was the, the, then at the time known as the atomic freeze movement, which mm-hmm. was to try to stop making more bombs to kind of at least put a lid on the arms race. And then the other people who saw that as, as dangerous because it was a kind of complicity. It was a, it was a basically a, you know, it was moving away from the goal of, of nuclear deterrence and you, you were risking that you would be you know, vulnerable. They all showed up for extras casting and uh, and appeared. But I wanted to just kind of indulge a little bit of my own TV movie history lore mm-hmm. to explain why there's something quite uncharacteristic about this casting. This is the, um, the, the, the 80s of TV movies, which was in many ways the very height of TV itself, broadcast television. Um, but this is where TV stars reinvented themselves 
and became reimagined in people's minds, but TV audiences showed up to watch people they've been watching every week on TV series. So the example I'd give is Fair Fawcett went from Charlie's Angels to the star of The Burning Bed, which was this extraordinarily provocative social issue drama, and suddenly got reinvented and reimagined as a dramatic actress and who used that TV capital hmm. to, to do that. Ted Danson, bartender from Cheers, is suddenly a child molester in Something About Amelia. And they're doing this because they're using their kind of celebrity, television celebrity value to reach the broadest audience about these issues that they are as people, not actors, passionate about, even though it is in direct violation of who they represent as a character in the other projects. This was not the case with a Jason Robards. Jason Robards was a huge feature film star who had just gotten nominated for an Academy Award for Melvin and Howard. He'd come off a, a decade of playing extraordinary roles, often real life characters, Ben Bradley and All the President's Men. And what's even more fascinating is after he did this movie, to me, that, that's a, a, a really fascinating, interesting aspect of, I guarantee you, none of these actors' agents were trying to get them in this movie. <laughs> none of them were saying, go do TV. Not in 1983. I don't know that they were warning them against it because of the potential political backlash. I don't think anyone could have predicted that. But it's not a, a risk worth taking for the nominal amount of exposure you could get. What I love is the story that Nick Meyer told about running into Jason Robards on a plane, telling him about the project. And Robards literally says, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> Without reading the script or telling him, you know, send it to my agent or figuring out what the timing or the cost. He's like, no, I'll do it. Nick Meyer says, don't you want to read it first? And he goes, huh, it beats marching. <laughs> yeah, his military his military career uh, before he got into acting is by itself could have been uh, something you you can hang your hat on. But uh, he's quite a quite a life. But remember, he went on to do Philadelphia, playing the yeah. heavy in Philadelphia. Used his, if you will, cultural capital as a star, as a movie star, and used that to get these projects to go and get off the ground to advance social issues. And to me, there's something really quite remarkable. Uh, and this is something that goes back to the history of Hollywood. There's a book called Hollywood Left and Right by Stephen J. Ross, who talks about since the very beginning of Hollywood, movie stars have been at the center of being able to get the industry to talk about very volatile political social issues, but from both ends of the spectrum. So they're not always progressive right. left liberal celebrities. So that's, that's an unfortunate assumption some people make. Yeah, I think that's that's important. The other th person is is Lithgow, who, as you know, goes on the Manhattan Project. He doesn't have any TVQ at all <laughs> at that point. So he's got big box office clout, but no one in TV knows who he is. Right. So there's something, I think, quite remarkable about this cast in that regard. They're not your typical TV movie cast, which in arg arguably should have made it harder to get an audience, but it ended up not hurting it at all. Well, it's it's definitely a movie that had a better end result in terms of a TV movie, a TV you know made-for-TV experience than other TV movies we've covered on this podcast series. Uh, I'm thinking in particular about this movie called Atomic Train with uh, Rob Lowe and some others, which has got some big-name people in it, but it's complete garbage. Four hours of garbage. So I'm glad that this one worked out as well as it has. And I think people would agree, I, the 
The movie gets it's fairly highly graded on Rotten Tomatoes. It was eventually shown uh, in theaters in addition to being on TV, uh, including Soviet state television in 1987. Nominated for an Emmy Award. Uh, you mentioned earlier about Ted Danson and something about Amelia. That's what beat it out. Uh, that year. And the only note I want to have on that is one of the people's, the, Amelia, the, the main star of that movie, is Roxana Zoll, and she plays the daughter in Testament, which is another great, great nuke film uh, that came out you know, right around the same time. So let's get into it here. Uh, before we before we get into the, the plot, uh, there's two main high-level questions I think we want to think about throughout the episode. You know, first, what is it about this TV movie that left such a massive impact on the American public and, you know, in, and a U.S. president. What is the thing that's behind this that kind of gets someone thinking about these topics a little bit more than the average affair you would see in the theater? And, and finally, what lessons does the film history and its story have for how average people would have experienced a nuclear war in its aftermath? Because I think that is the second half of the film. It's really trying to show what life would be like for people who kind of had to deal with this and not just in a big city, but in you know rural America, the heartland. So before we, we do this, uh, spoiler warning as usual, this movie came out in 1983, so you probably should have seen it. And if you're interested in the topics that we cover on the podcast, this is definitely one that I recommend uh, people see. It's one of those seminal films that is a quite a number of people that I know of that work in the nuclear field. So for this one, because of that, I'm going to divide our plot discussion into two main sections. Uh, first, the lead up to the bombs exploding, and then the aftermath. And the reason I'm doing this, the silly reason is, that's how it was shown on TV. Uh, they had a bunch of commercials up until the bombs dropped, and then afterwards it was uninterrupted, probably because an advertiser didn't want to show their product uh, right after someone's hair was falling out because of radiation sickness. But the real reason is because most of what I want to talk about is the plot discussion and the and the story and behind the scenes thing that David has great information on. So we'll get to that pretty quickly here. This is one of the deeper flaws that you could describe the day after Testament and Threads also suffer from hmm. is that they only have two act structures unlike a typical hollywood narrative with a three act structure which of course the the guys that did independence day came in <laughs> with their science fiction uh know how to say hey we've got a third act structure we beat the aliens or in their version of the day after which they called the day after tomorrow people are able to escape earth and survive climactic change right so that's the next iteration so urban allen urban allen wrote the template for the two act structure of the disaster movie right there was no way around it for right. any of these three movies it was before the bomb drops and after the bomb drops and there's a little bit of uh, i think in many ways it, it does handicap the telling of these of these narratives because there's no third act there's no, you know, resolution or denouement or, you know, there's no twist. It's just painfully watching things go badly. Yeah. And I, I think it's weird to say that it, it probably affects how enjoyable the film is, but it probably reflects on how much there wouldn't be a, a third act. Um, John Lithgow quotes Einstein in this movie. You know what Einstein said about World War Three? He said he didn't know how they were going to fight World War Three. But he knew how they would fight World War Four with sticks and stones. I think we never know what Act Three will be like in these kinds of stories, but we know Act Four will probably be uh, etchings on a on a cave wall. The Act Three, I think, a lot of these filmmakers across all these movies was hoping for is the reaction from the audience watching this. The Act We're Three, supposed to be doing is, it. you see one and two now save the world, and I actually think that's 
that's where we wound up, at least where we've gotten to for the last 30 years. So. Excellent. Well, that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. So people uh, buckle in and let's get into it here. So the first section is the days before the day. Uh, the movie opens with very stirring music, some aerial footage of something flying over the heartland. We see farmland, we see cornfields, shots of American life like barbecues, families playing horseshoes, baseball stadiums. And, and intermixed with this footage are other beautiful slices of the American heartland, such as, oh, an underground silo holding a thermonuclear intercontinental ballistic missile. And this is because in uh, many parts of Kansas in the 1980s, including McConnell Air Force Base and Whiteman Air Force Base, just right outside of Kansas City, Missouri, there were, you know, a number of Titan missiles, Titan II missiles, which were capable of delivering a nuclear payload across the world in 30 minutes, as well as, in, you know, in Whiteman, there were 150 Minuteman two missiles that were there. So even though it's in the center of the country um, and people think, well, it's not a big city, we're not a target. Well, they are. Uh, one of the reasons why we have our missiles in the middle of the country is because it takes a little bit longer to get there, either by missile or by bomber. So you put them in the middle of the country, you think you might be able to wait a little bit longer before uh, you have a little bit more time to launch your stuff and get them in the air before the enemies say if you're being hit first. So the idea is you put them in the middle, you space them out, becomes a little bit like a sponge. You have these targets, hopefully in the middle of, you know, middle of quote nowhere so that you can uh, have fewer civilian casualties. But the reality of it is, if you look at a map about where these things are located, they're often co-located with farms. They're co-located with people and where they live. And the movie, I think, does a terrific job of showing that. The opening is in many ways the same opening as Dallas, the TV series, <laughs> where the, the, you know, the flyover images of all of the land and the cattle and the oil rigs and the prosperity in the city and every, it literally has that mixed in with the opening of war games. So, you know, of the guys going down into the silo, mm -hmm. silos and having to like turn the key and all that. So you've literally mashed these two together, which is such a kind of a brilliant metaphor for the fact that this movie is trying to be both cinematic and a television show at the same time. It's, it's, it's operating and borrowing from both aesthetics. Here, which is fine. Despite this very peaceful setting, there's not peace in the world. The thing we, we get in the movie is occasional TV report or a brief radio uh, report, and we learn that there's strategic arms limitation talks between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, but those are going to start to break down because there's some massive buildups uh, by NATO and the Soviet Union along the various borders dividing you know East and West Berlin. We also hear that maybe NATO allies are expressing some uncertainty that will the United States trade Chicago for for, for you know West Berlin or or for uh, London. So that means that the U.S. maybe feel like it has to be a little bit more aggressive in defending its NATO allies, which is by through a treaty alliance says that they'll defend them, in, including in an in event of a nuclear war. We get reports that East Germany is now blockaded uh, by the uh, Soviet Union, and then West Berlin is shut off 
from NATO support, and this is considered an act of war by the West. There are some skirmishes, NATO forces trying to break through the blockade, there's heavy casualties, uh, Soviet Air Force starts bombing NATO bases, there's rumors at first of the Soviet Union preparing to use quote-unquote tactical nuclear weapons, things that are somewhat less, <laughs> they're, they're very large bombs, they're bigger than anything ever in conventional sense, uh, but they're thought of more as a tactical battlefield used than a strategic, they're still pretty dangerous, still pretty big. Uh, there's reports of these being used against the U.S., then there's actual reports of this happening. But the key thing is, even though all of this is happening in violence back and forth, we don't know in the movie who fired the first shot. And that was very, very deliberate here. Uh, David, I'm sure this came up in your in your discussions. In every single conversation, uh, all the way back to when I was just asking Stardard about the politics of the film. And Stardard would vehemently, adamantly hone to the same line, which is this was not a political movie. And what I've come to realize is that uh, as a filmmaker and as a programming executive, politics refers very explicitly to discussing policy, to discussing what goes on in Washington, D.C., to discussing the, the real world contestations between superpowers. And this was a uh, very deliberate effort on his part and that of the filmmakers to not turn this into a bit, a bit of agitprop and to really root this around more of the sociocultural politics of what was going on in Lawrence, Kansas. But mm. in that regard, they don't, uh, filmmakers and executives in that time, in fact, I wouldn't use the word sociocultural politics if I wasn't also a, 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 <laughs> a professor of media studies, right? Um, politics, capital P or small p, um, is something that as a filmmaker, you're told to not advertise or promote. There's the famous line about, um, if you want to send a message, call Western Union, um, that Sam <laughs> Goldwyn said, um, which is the idea that, that you don't let on, you don't acknowledge, but you also don't foreground your position because in doing so, it's less persuasive. And we saw this, for example, with Threads and people's frustrating comparisons between these two movies. Mm -hmm. They really resent that the day after wasn't explicit and that Threads was, but we're talking about two separate contexts where Threads was in many ways, a intervention around the, the superpowers treating Britain like it doesn't exist and doesn't, doesn't matter. That was a very different sort of framing than what these filmmakers were trying to do. And if there's any political thing I'd say that they were hoping for, that they were striving for, was to, to remove the exceptional American denialism um, it was to strip away our belief that we were somehow superpowered and over, overwhelmingly able to prevent this from ever happening. Um, so that was the politics of the movie. It wasn't an indictment of policy or of, of capitalism versus you know, communism or the, the geopolitics of the world. It was really a political movie about American denialism and our, our capacity to continue to, to fool ourselves into thinking that we're somehow safer when this madness was take, taking place despite that. Two friendly neighbors to the north and south and two oceans on either side uh, may stop you from getting invaded, but it does very little, it uh, turns out, uh, to stop uh, incoming nuclear missile or a bomber or even even the, the ocean's not safe from submarines that can fire nuclear weapons. So I think this is a, a terrific point on this point. And I will say this, I will, I will put my cards on the table here. 
Um, I was one of those people who did not enjoy The Day After as much because I didn't think it was as hard-hitting as it needed to be compared to Threads. However, after doing research for this and after uh, reading your notes, and I'm sure this conversation will change my mind even further, I'm starting to see what each was trying to accomplish a lot more. And I think I finally have gotten over my the block in my head that Steve Gutenberg's in this, so therefore it's not as serious as it needs to be because I was a big Police Academy guy growing up. That was my one of my dad's and my mom's favorite movies series. So putting that aside, I can see what the, what they're trying to do, do here. And, you know, you talked about political. By the way, I don't want to make it personal, but this film was not made for you. Fair enough, right? It was made for people who never think about this issue and might be persuaded to hear more. And that's what more. I think Nicholas Meyer, I wrote somewhere that he wasn't trying to reach people who were already like me on this side. I think he said he wanted, it was very dismissive, but it was funny. He wanted to reach the kind of people who watch the TV show, uh, The Flying Nun which is also, I will say, my mom's favorite show growing up with Sally Field. But one of the things I wanted to note here, you talk about they didn't want to say who was responsible for the first shot and all of that. Well, they even got pushback from the people that they might want to assist on this movie, like the U.S. government, the Department of Defense. We got into this in great detail uh, on the On the Beach episode that we recently covered about how the role of Hollywood and the Pentagon back in the 50s and 60s, it was if you want a movie made and you want the toys, the props, you have to give script approval to the Pentagon. That started to break down in the 60s and 70s, and I, by the time this movie was made, the Defense Department said they wanted script approval. They wanted it to be clear the Soviet Union started the war, but that was a bridge too far for everybody. So they declined this request, and that's what we get in in this particular movie. And I think it it improves the ability for someone to kind of understand that idea that you're, yeah, even with deterrence, even with all of the stuff that we think we are as our shield to prevent us from happening. It doesn't matter who started the war; the result is often the same. Um, and that's kind of the big thing you need to be concerned about here. Maybe get rid of the weapons. <laughs> there was an interview on Nightline with Koppel about five years later with a Russian bureaucrat and a, a U.S. Secretary of Defense site, someone in the Defense Department, talking about propaganda and the state. The Russians talked about how it was so hard to control and keep a lid on propaganda that promoted the Soviet Union as it was gradually or rapidly starting to fall apart at the seams for all the various reasons we now know from history. The U.S. bureaucrats said, well, you had your uh, propaganda problems and we had the day after. <laughs> yeah, and it, it definitely uh, ruffled some feathers here for sure. It, it really posed a lot of problems because we have this thing called First Amendment. and uh, But also the fact that, you know, Hollywood has had to dart in and out. This will bring I'll bring up later, but it's a, it's a set of strategies that Hollywood has constantly had to engage in and tactics to keep the powers that be from freaking out about the sort of claims and arguments they're making while serving the commercial needs of the mm -hmm. network and the studio while also trying to tap into what is great storytelling for a purpose meant to sway hearts and minds. And I, the story is is great in the day after because of the characters uh, that are in it. So let's get through a, a few of them that are here as the kind of action starts to heat up before the nuclear war does. So the main person, I would say probably the lead of this movie, if you had to pick one, it's very much a, I think in your notes, you mentioned as a, as a Rashomon type plot. I think it, it's true. It's, it has a couple different things that weave you know, in and out. But uh, one of the main people of this, you know, the main, the main star at least is, is Jason Robards plays Dr. Russell Oakes, and he is a kind, an older, well-respected surgeon. Uh, I think he's based in Kansas City, but he teaches classes at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. 
He's got a son in, in football in high school. He's got a daughter who's, uh, I think, an art history. or So he's going to move to Boston uh, at some point soon. So he's he's worried about that. He's worried about what the future of his family is going to look like. And he's, his wife is also pretty worried, but she's worried about the conflict in Europe and what it might bring up some of their f- fears and things they had. Uh, they mentioned their experience during the Cuban Missile Crisis, what life was like uh, with them. But, you know, weirdly enough, it associates and it was a happy and sad moment for them because they think that it might have been the night that their daughter was conceived. So it's a weird mix of uh, stress and also happy moments. But still for them now, they worry. You know what the wife mentions at one point. What what if it does happen? Where will we go? We got up, went to the window, looked for the bomb. Didn't happen. It's not going to happen now. People are crazy, but not that crazy. (sighs) What if it does happen? What do we do? And, you know, right on this point, Dr. Oakes, he is uh, talking uh, with one of his fellow doctors after he hears on the radio about some of the military buildup and things. And he says that there are people, according to rumors, that are evacuating Moscow, that people are even leaving Kansas City to go somewhere else. And the doctor that he's talking to has a great line here. He says, you know, where does one go from Kansas City? The Yukon? Tahiti? We're not talking about Hiroshima anymore. That was peanuts. And I think that's a good point. And this is really the theme of the movie. If if Kansas City in Lawrence, Kansas is not like safe from nuclear war, where are you going to go? Where are you going to go? Yeah, where are you going to go? And, you know, continuing this thread here, this particular theme, um, sorry, not continuing this thread, this is a different movie. There's a science professor at the university, uh, Joe Huxley, who's played by John Lithgow. He's reminding people that Lawrence, Kansas is, you know, right in the bullseye. They're right in the middle of all of this. Um, there's those nearby missile bases or the fact that uh, all of these weapons are ready to fire. There really is no safe location for anybody to go to, uh, you know, as the students try to figure out where they want to go. Hey, Tim, one of the reasons for the way these two characters are framed in this way and this conversation happens is because right around that same moment, the scientists were starting to raise awareness around nuclear winter. Right. The idea that it doesn't necessarily have to be where you were attacked, that the whole planet would suffer the global consequences, something akin to, you know, a bunch of volcanoes exploding and that we would go into some sort of a cold age era because of the long-term and and long-lasting consequences. So um, it was important that the film, you know, on the one hand said no one's safe anywhere, particularly if you're surrounded by a bunch of silos that you want to pretend doesn't exist. But it was also true that even in Tahiti, (laughs) you had wound up suffering from the fallout. Um, And we now know this uh, from having seen the after effects of where atomic bombs were dropped, including over in the testing areas in the, in the southeast. And we'll we'll get into this right at the very end here. But uh, after the movie was shown on TV, uh, there was a dis- debate on viewpoint with with Ted Koppel and a few others, including Carl Sagan, the famed scientist um, who used that as an opportunity to start to present some of this climate theory of, of, of nuclear winter. It was one of the first times this was really discussed by someone who, you know, had had the cachet that he did right in the middle of this. It's not in the movie, which we'll talk about, but it is it is clearly here in terms of the debate. But much like Threads, there are there's a couple characters here who aren't necessarily focused on on what's going on in the world, the the global conflict between the US and the Soviet Union. They're concerned about their lives and kind of getting their lives together. Uh, and those are two people here, Denise uh, Dahlberg. And I don't, do they ever say the name of this, her fiance, the student? 
at the University of, of Lawrence. I couldn't find it anywhere, but they, he's, she's got a fiance and they're they're in love. They're on motorcycles. They're late. They're, they're because they're making out. They're late to their own wedding rehearsal. Um, this is uh, <laughs> doesn't really make the the family all that happy. There's a very stern dad. Uh, figure here who just wants to, you know, make sure that his daughter is doing well. He's worried about the conflict, but he's also kind of upset that she's uh, growing up a little bit too fast. So there's that element there, and there's supposed to be a wedding very soon. And the son-in-law, who unnamed, at least as far as I can tell, um, he goes to go, he sees reports, he knows that the other students are upset about what's happening in the world, but he's just very narrowly kind of to focus. He's trying to avoid what's happening here. He just wants to go get his hair cut for his wedding. But even at the barber shop, there's this fierce debate between people who are getting their hair cut and the barbers about what's going to go on. And uh, I love it. There's uh, given discussions about launch on warning. There's discussions about the U.S. military's presence in Europe. And nowhere he can't escape anything. I really don't think either side wants to be the first to use a nuclear device. You know, it's not a question of who, but where. Over whose real estate? Say we explode a nuclear bomb over their troops on our side. The fallout had better not drift over to their side. They're crazy. How do they expect it's going to stop with just one bomb? You want to know what crazy is? Crazy's not staying out of other people's business. We shouldn't be over there in the first place. The thing that bothers me is that damn launch on warning. What's that? That's when one side tells the other that they're going to fire their missiles as soon as they think the other guy's missiles are already on the way. You know, use them or lose them. Um, but he jumps on his motorcycle to try to get back home to see if, you know, he can be back with her, with, with Denise. But I think his name was Bruce. Bruce, thank you. I um, think it, Bruce is his name. And it, poor Bruce. I'm not sure they, I don't know what happened to that actor, but uh, he didn't he didn't take off like a lot of the other uh, people, like Amy Madigan, who shows up in here, and you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so those are the, the the average you know people here. There's also a a pre med student Stephen Klein played by Steve Gutenberg. He's getting a physical at the university, uh, but then he decides after he sees all the news reports, he gets on a he tries to hitchhike his way to Joplin, Missouri, uh, to be with his folks during the crisis. So a nice a nice son there, uh, but he gets dropped off kind of some random place in the the farmland. Um, the other interesting group here that I'm glad they focused on are people who are these launch officers, people who are stationed at very far away lo- locations uh, because of the fact that you spread these missile silos um, underground and put miles between them because the idea is one or two incoming weapons have to target each individual once because if one warhead can hit multiple targets you're kind of you're allowing the other side to get off too easy so you try to spread them out across the different area so these are pretty far apart they actually have to take helicopters to get between the the head uh, headquarters over to the location uh which is definitely how they they go about and do that in real life in the cold war and also even today they actually i think this year are finally starting to replace some vietnam era hueys they used to bring people around um they got a new helicopter they they named it gray wolf uh, and they're going to start replacing those these days because if you imagine uh this part of the world when it gets uh, snowy and, and other uh inclement weather tornadoes things like that it's pretty hard to get between them but but tim by the way i have a fad, bad feeling based on what i keep reading is is that a lot of those missile silos are still operating off of 12 inch floppy disks <laughs> yeah they, they still have they are the infrastructure for those missile silos particularly as people have moved beyond that that the mid 1980s arms race um, has not been dedicated, and these are all sitting time bombs, literally waiting to go off. So uh, that that's a bit of a terrible thing to mention in the middle of a nice, lovely podcast. But to say no, it's that a good you point, know, and there, there there's been a little bit of progress made these days on some command and control improvements. I think the floppy disk thing might be 
finally starting to be replaced, but they, it's really tricky, right? You, if you replace a system that's analog and it works well and it's air-gapped between the outside world where there's all these hackers and people who may want to do attacks to either make the weapons go off when you don't want them to or stop them from going off when you do, maybe these older systems that works okay are the way to go, or you try to update that but then keep that level of security. It's very, very challenging war games was the whole that was the whole takeaway of war games right was oh be careful you create a uh an algorithmically driven artificial intelligence that's going to take out the human element in in this thing you may uh wind up fighting this thing after all as the general (laughs) says the act three of that movie the the great conclusion of it is is that the launch officers uh, get their chairs back um, and they get, to, they get to sit back in there. Yay! Um, John Spencer and uh, Michael Madsen get their chairs back. Um, but the the cool thing about this movie is, is that the launch officers are characters. You, you see them talking about their plans for the weekend. They're very excited that they're going to get some time off. And one guy has to be the downer and, and is reading the newspaper and says, I don't know. This is iffy. These tensions might prevent us from getting our, our, our leave. And we, we get... Uh, some visibility into one of the silos, which is located right next to a farm. It's a, a fence line is almost on the other side of the property from this one family farm. And one of the characters we do meet there is Airman Billy McCoy. And he, when military tensions start to rise, the U.S. president puts everybody on high alert. It means he has to pack the bags for a couple of nights and leave his wife and kid um, to go over to this launch facility. Damn it, Maureen, it's an alert! It is four sets of everything. It's just strictly by the book. I'm scared as what? Look, sit down. Maureen, there's nothing to worry about. I'm going to be right next door. I'm going to be on the base the whole time, and I'm going to call you every night. Okay? I just want to just also say through the lens of 2021 storytelling that this is an African-American military character who is actually the voice of reason, basically turning to the other characters in the story and saying, don't you get it, guys? I mean, we did our job. Yeah. But now we've got to we've got a bigger mission now. I mean, which is find our families and save our families. And they're torn between this kind of blind allegiance and duty and fidelity to what they were told they must do as part of this mission and the understanding that he has, uh, which is, uh, oh no, the world's changed, and I've got to, you know, go about doing what's, what's, what's there's a larger cause here. Um, I, I think it gets understated uh, in, in that, but you know, for a TV movie to have an African American character be the moral and ethical center alongside Robards, I think was in some ways a bit of a, of a I was going to say a testament, a, a tribute. <laughs> <laughs> To the, to the filmmakers, because I don't think it was something that was normatively accepted and, and appreciated. But although, remember, these are the same uh, programming executives that made Roots, Brian Song, and Jane Pittman. So they are mm-hmm. always probably more conscious and aware than other parts of the media industries, Hollywood, film, feature films, or series television about diversity and multiculturalism and representation. So... Maybe it was something that factored in. Can we make sure we have African-American representation here? And that was, I believe, that was William Allen Young, who plays uh, William Allen Young, Billy McCoy. Who's to act for the last 30 years, but I don't, can't honestly say, um, and he's done a lot of, mostly TV, it looks like. So. Yeah, he's had a, quite, a, quite a career here. Um, um, really well. 
But you mentioned, you know, when they did their job. Uh, so that's the day. That's the next section here. So on the drive back home after one of his uh, either work, I forget if it's the work at the hospital or uh, teaching classes, you know, Dr. Oaks, his radio, he, they start to hear an emergency broadcast. It's a signal that telling people something's happening, uh, prepare for the worst. To substantiate the rumor that low kiloton range nuclear weapons were detonated this morning during the conflict, resulting in the reported destruction of Beast and the outskirts of Frankfurt. He tries to call home on a payphone, and I think on one of the small, really powerful scenes in the movie is everyone else has the same idea. The the line for the payphones, um, which don't exist at all these days, but in, in 1983, everyone was trying to do the same thing. There are people panicking, and no one can reach, you know, can't reach home, so he's not able to call home. Uh, but he tries to get back. You see the Dahlberg family, uh, the one with Denise uh, getting married. Uh, instead, the dad is trying to prep the shelter with beans and water, and they start uh, digging uh, dirt onto the wall of uh, by the windows for their basement, where they're essentially probably a storm shelter and not meant for a fallout shelter. You know, trying to put dirt there to kind of create some space between uh, fallout and kind of where they're going to be. By the way, Tim, there's a funny anecdote about what's going on at that moment. The Undersecretary of Defense in 1982 had just said, we can all survive a nuclear war. All we need is a shovel, which was the idea mm. is that you just build a hole and you bury yourself under four inches of dirt and then come out when it's over <laughs> and you're fine. Literally, that's what the government, well, some members of the government were trying to say. So the whole idea that they're burying themselves under the, in using dirt to encase themselves in an odd way, uh, uh, it, it has parallels to that that crazy statement that has uh, pushed a lot of buttons. They're they're trying to get food for the shelter. There's a huge food riot. Uh, everyone's at the grocery store. People are panicking, trying to buy products. Um, and at one point, in a very very powerful scene, uh, the Dahlberg uh, father physically has to drag his the mother down to the basement because she's making the bed because she's getting ready for the wedding. She's in denial and shock for what's happening here. And I think that is just a powerful scene. Um, and I, at the risk of slowing things down again, have you heard anything from any of the people you interviewed about that particular scene? Because it's such a small one, but it, it is one of the ones that I think about a lot when I think about this movie. It's so interesting that you bring that up because um, to, A, it wasn't something that was top of mind until I was revisiting uh, some of the critiques and commentaries for this podcast we're doing. And the, the threads people kept saying, what's wrong with her? How can she be such, such an idiot that she doesn't know that this is the end of the world? And to me, it's such a kind of a, a, a non-American understanding of what is Heartland America, which is that that's not top of mind. But also, this is to my point, this is a film about shattering American denialism. Right. about somehow getting us past the fairy tales and the myths that we've had to to create to to live day to day. And B.B. Besh's character is kind of breathtaking and daring in, in an odd way at just refusing, because she knows that, that this is a bit of a fool's errand, running down to the basement to hide with her family as if this, like this thing was just like a bad tornado that's going to blow right. through like Annie M, you know, um, <laughs> is, is a little, it's, it's, that's as absurd to her as it is a, to us watching her go about trying to make the beds. Uh, I just also want to make another plea to say that B.B. Besh is uh, another actress who goes on to star in other TV movies that foreground social issues. Hmm. There was a, a great movie called Doing Time on Maple Drive about 10 years later 
which was all about um, a uh, gay man coming to terms with who he is and attempting suicide. And she's the mother. She plays kind of like uh, Mary Tyler Moore in Ordinary People. She's the stern, hard mother who cannot accept and come to terms with the fact that she has a gay son. Hmm. And you see this pattern repeated a lot of a small coterie of actors willing to take on roles where they're often playing fairly negative or, or, or not always the romantic lead in these, in these roles. They're willing to let audiences not like them because there's a larger mission involved, which is they're, they're part of a social issue story that they're trying to get a message and a moral and a, and a lesson across. And I feel like they don't get enough credit for doing that sort of work. It makes you very vulnerable when you are someone in those kind of situations. I, I all the power to them, and I'm glad that they were recognized, um, at least by, by, by many people in terms of the roles they eventually did get uh, for their role and work in this. And the movie's not completely filled with original performances. There's actually quite a bit here in the movie where it starts to become a little bit more like a stock footage montage. But I actually think they do a really effective job and kind of inter- intermixing stuff here. There's uh, shots of, you know, now the military is starting to to get going here. There's a news report that interrupts some kids watching some cartoons uh, that tells everybody, look, there's a, a nuclear weapon went off uh, in the air, an airburst over uh, Soviet Union forces uh, in Europe, you know, and there's a flurry of military activity. You see B-52 bomber crews, you know, scramble to get into the air uh, at NATO headquarters. You hear is hit, been hit by a nuclear weapon. One of the, the weirdest things about this movie, and I, I want to ask you about this later, it does, it starts with, which appears to be like stock footage of um, someone who's at a, a, the airborne command post, uh, the the looking glass, the mobile aerial plane that can, in case if if NORAD or strategic command is destroyed, uh, the Pentagon is destroyed. This is something in the military that can still issue the orders to the launch silos, to the the submarines, to the bombers, to to go about with their mission. Uh, we see this start to scramble up, and at the very beginning of the movie, there's a kind of a quiet moment where the commander comes on and starts asking, "Where's the president? Where's the vice president? Great, good to know." But it's a normal day so maybe it's just one of those this is just a part of american day-to-day life then it is the barbecues and the the plain horseshoes it's just that very quiet moment it's like yeah everything's perfectly fine but we see that actually run into action they get the codes uh the authentication codes and then finally the orders uh to go out to everybody to use their nuclear weapons uh we see the launch silo crews receiving their orders and going through really the motion uh that they need to launch the missiles themselves and everything really tracks for what uh, i know and i when i've talked to missileers kind of the process and a lot of this stuff is actually not hidden because there's no reason for it to be secret if anything you want to show how fast the process can work and that it's smooth so that the other side is going to hesitate before they think that they can get to you before you get your weapons up in the air um it's a i think it's a mix of stock footage and and other pieces but i think it's done pretty effectively here so here's where i put my professor hat on um and my old media studies hat on there's three reasons producer professor and media studies so there's Mm -hmm. three reasons i think to think about the, the way in which archival footage is integrated in this film. Um, one is a pure budgetary reason. They right. aren't able to recreate this stuff, right? And if the footage is there, let's just see if we can't treat it in a way that it looks and flows seamlessly in with all the other footage. But the, the second is, and this is the to me, the radical and the more the more powerful way in which docudrama can operate. And what's mm-hmm. fascinating is, is in the British system, they call it drama doc. Um, but docudrama is the ability to create scripted, what some people like to call it fiction. I don't like, I don't like that term, but they call it scripted content around 
real world stories and events. And the, 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 the effort here in all three of these movies, Day After Threads and Testament, was to root these conditions with as much verisimilitude about what was really going on in the world, including the exact nature of the procedures. The more correct and precise they could be about these, these procedures and what goes down, the greater the sense that this was not some escapist Hollywood movie that they're right. watching out in the movie theater, but they're sitting in their home watching this happen as if it were going on in real time. And that's extremely powerful, even though the treatment of the footage doesn't always flow and you're not quite sure, are you watching an actor or are you watching documentary footage? But uh, I, I, this is where I go total uh, nerd on you. But it takes us back to Alan Renee's film, Hiroshima Mon Amour. Hmm. I don't know how much you know or remember that movie. I've seen it and I've been struggling with how to cover it, but it's great. Okay. Well, what's, you know, Rene had originally done a 20 minute documentary called Night and Fog about the Holocaust. And he'd been hired to do another one about the atomic bomb. And he basically said, I don't want to do the same format. So he took the unbelievably painful footage of um, Hiroshima survivors um, and weaves it into this romantic, scripted romantic drama about these two lovers who've come together, one a Japanese architect and one a German actress who come together and fall in love, but who can never remain together because of the collective traumas that they both experienced in their lives. This is a radically new form, um, which launched, of course, the French New Wave, but also launched and gave permission for storytellers, um, particularly in the TV movie world, to say, hang on, we don't just have to do old Encyclopedia Britannica ethnographic <laughs> films. We don't have to do those after school special uh, approaches of like safety and health movies we can start to introduce scripted elements. So there's a character in media history named Bill Deneen who got hired by Columbia Pictures to launch an educational film studio called the Learning Channel of America, where he would not only produce documentaries to be shown in the classroom, produce um, and take old Hollywood movies and cut them up and make them into educational films for the classroom, but then he got into producing TV movies that were scripted TV movies that had morality tales that could also be shown in the classroom. So the TV arrival of the TV movie of the week franchise in broadcast TV coincided with the uh, government paying billions of dollars for schools to be able to show movies in the classroom. By the way, it all goes, that all goes back to Sputnik in 1958. When Sputnik happened, the government freaked out and said, we've got, to, we've got to get science and technology studies up, up to grade. We've got to compete with the Russians. It became a, uh, the arms race then was an intelligence race, an academic mm -hmm. race. And the best way they could figure out was to start using this new thing called film and TV in the classroom. And that led to the rise of docudrama and movies that were focused around telling a story, but also teaching a lesson. 
which is how I first got into this whole space. I That's what I was to say. That seems to be your uh, starting point for your career here as well. TV movies in the classroom. I came to Hollywood to be a teacher. <laughs> Excellent. Well, one, one thing that, uh, you know, it, it, that really starts to uh, teach people of what the world would be like if you were living in this kind of a nuclear scenario uh, is, I think, the next couple of scenes. You start to see the missiles of the United States, you know, leaving these silos, which, again, are mixed right around farmland and in the surrounding neighborhoods. And we start to see people like, at that family farm and they're outside and these two kids are just awestruck of what they're witnessing this missile flying out of the air you see the the concrete barricade that's meant to be a protection in case a weapon were to come come in first and and destroy the area at least uh, you see that fly off uh and then you see the missiles kind of go up in the air and you start to see people in their backyards and also in the in the towns there's this great shot of a gazebo and just the missiles flying over there and you see these these people from the town you know watching and just What's going on? Those are Miniman missiles. Like a test, sort of. Like a warning? They're on their way to Russia. They take about 30 minutes to reach their target. So do theirs, right? So you really start to see how much time they have left here. And that's when Aaron McCoy shows up to the silo. The missiles are already in the air. You kind of missed that part of the action. But as you mentioned, he's like, all right, we're done. Uh, what are we supposed to do here? And the MP there is like, no, our job is to stay. And it's like, but why? We don't have something to reload. We don't, what are we doing here? We know something's going to come here soon. So he eventually gets in a car and kind of drives off. We start to get a more of a sense of what the, the impact's going to be. There's 300 at least incoming missiles from Russia. Uh, there's air raid sirens in the town. People start to try to get down into basements or into the school area. And then from, uh, we see an overhead shot of, the, of, I think, Kansas City. And we start to see the bombs go off. The way they're portrayed in the movie is, you know, big, bright flash. All of the cars and lights in the town and everything start to go out. We see this uh, Dr. Oaks on the highway. His car shuts off. I guess that's, you know, they mentioned in the movie, it's uh, how they're going to portray an electromagnetic pulse, uh, which is a very popular thing in fiction about uh, nuclear war. Um, it's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but it's effective in the movie. And then we see the, you know, one of the famous shots of the mushroom cloud off in the distance from the perspective of the highway uh, go, you know, rising from the ground. And this is where I think the movie really goes for more of the artistic portrayal of a, of a nuclear attack rather than this kind of straight realism or stock footage or something. Um, there is some stock footage that they integrate into various places of nuclear testing and stuff, but this particular one is much more of an artistic choice. You see people um, going, you know, trying to escape, trying to figure out where they're going to be when this is happening, trying to get somewhere safe. But we see people like Dr. Oaks's daughter from earlier. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's her in the movie. Uh, there's a freeze frame while someone's screaming. Then you get a bright flash and their body, uh, outline of their body illuminates. And then you see their skeleton kind of pop out from inside like they're getting an x-ray. And then people vanish. We see groups of people that's happened to uh, families. We see school children. We see people old and young. We see cattle, pets, office workers, people like on the phone, you know, work. Everybody, this sickening event, you know, happened today. And we see stock footage from nuclear tests destroying buildings, collapsing, people catching on fire, the blast waves hitting the cities. I think it's a good mix here. Once you kind of look at it from, it's trying to draw out an emotion rather than this is what it looks like. This is some sort of scientifically accurate portrayal of what it would be. It's very effective. And I know a lot of people who talk about how this movie has impacted them in terms of working in nonproliferation, working in nuclear policy. 
it's those images that kind of, you know, get them in in their gut and they kind of really continue to remember to, to this day. Was some of the stuff that you maybe talked to some of the filmmakers about why they went with that particular approach, other than the fact that, you know, budgetary reasons, they can't actually blow up a nuclear weapon and, and film it. Well, it is interesting when you think about the fact that um, when the bomb was dropped in Hiroshima, um, there were only images of the burned shadows mm-hmm. left on the buildings because the bodies had been disintegrated. And in some ways, this is uh, kind of an optical effect of burning those images into our memories that we can't ever be able to move past them. Right. And that was definitely a strategy. Although I, I gotta be confess, I haven't d- done a lot of digging down around the nature of the circumstances and the visual effects team that was involved. Um, a lot of it was an economic issue is how long can we string this out to give maximum effect. And if we saw, there was a lot of footage that they were able to get the rights to that I used in my uh, documentation project that I made for history, which was, you know, there's so much uh, footage of atomic bomb destruction that was done, produced often by the military. There's all right. documentary about the military, um, you know, hiring that, that uh, studio up in Laurel Canyon to go and film the testing of atomic bombs and people watching the testing and the after effects that there's no reason to go out and have to recreate it. You didn't have to use any of the models that, that they did on Independence Day when they blew up the buildings, which I, I, I love to rewatch those sequences because you can see just as many creaks and, and uh, it looks as cheesy sometimes when you slow it down on your television. Sometimes where that works in uh, Terminator 2, they also have that mix of realistic and very clearly, you know, artistic portrayal again with skeletons. Uh, but yeah, Independence Day, they try to make this look as realistic. But to me, it's these other versions and portrayals that I think really leave much more of an impact there. The thing I wanted to also mention is, is the comparisons between this this montage sequence to what you see in Threads. I've heard critics often say, well, you know, Threads was so much more effective because you had the woman peeing her pants. Right. And I'm like, it's a pretty startling image and one produced totally out of exigency. They didn't have a budget to do a lot of the effects. But I was a, a little shocked at how similar um, these, these effects were. So everything from the bursting of the glass windows to the burning bodies and the embers that you would see kind of very fleetingly in very quick, quick and if horrifying images that um, that stood out for me. And then I, I just want to mention how Testament got away with doing none of that. None of that. Yeah, not a single one. Not a, they just simply had a bright light, a Klieg light blow, blow through the living room and the TV went out and that was it. So in some ways, it's kind of interesting how you're imagination only remembers those vivid images, but also the absence of those images can sometimes be even be even more powerful because it's not about the kind of cinematic effect of, of everything blowing up and exploding. It's the personal narrative. It's the soap opera. It's the melodrama before and after that um, is what leaves you with the more powerful takeaway from Testament anyway. And it also reflects about how a lot of people might experience a nuclear war because I look, I live close enough to the Pentagon that if uh, if China or Russia were to use certain kinds of bombs, I would not have a notice. Um, so it, I would be I would be gone pretty quickly here. But if you lived in you know many parts of the United States, that's how you might experience a nuclear war. Is there are rumblings? Maybe there's the news reports say something's happening, and then all of a sudden they're shut off. You don't experience rubble and fire, but what you, you experience, you know, radiation or the fact that your civilization has now been shut off from you, and the things you once relied on are there. So it's a different way. I'm glad there's these different portrayals. 
There's tons of news reports, by the way, of the local news talking to people on the street about watching the day after. <laughs> and in almost in, in countless instances, there are people being interviewed saying, oh, God, I hope I don't survive. Right. I hope I go quickly because what they showed in this film made me realize it'd be far worse to have to live with this than if I just got to, you know, disappear in an instant. Um, and it, in many ways, that was a, another big kind of takeaway of the film, which is that if we could survive a nuclear war, would we want to, particularly if it turns out to have much longer, devastating, decrippling effects that leads to the society falling apart? This is the, the again, this is the Einstein quote. It's, you know, right. society will be destroyed even if we, if humanity lives. So... And this is where we are now in the plot discussion, the the days after. So we'll, I think the way to, to go about this in a, an efficient way is just to talk about the different groups, run through their story. It's intermixed um, you know, in the story of the, actually when you watch the movie. But uh, we'll go through each of them here you know, before we can get into the, the really interesting stuff here. Uh, we get the science lab at the University of, of Lawrence. We see you know, John Lithgow. His, his students um, are starting to try to get a radio to work again so they can get keep some communication with the outside world because we start to see radioactive debris falling you know down onto the ground there's a, a geiger counter uh, on one of the counters that starts ticking and john lithgow knows what that means uh, that radiation is starting to, f- to fall and affect people they use an old car battery to get a radio working and i want to love this really quick throwaway line of this the kid that walks in with the battery says these are getting scarcer than hen's teeth Stay out so long looking. I only need one for the short wave. And I had to look that up because I hadn't heard that phrase in a long time. Uh, but they get the radiation readings. They start issuing them to the hospitals. They try to reach people, but no one's answering. Radiation is, is pretty high, 50 rads an hour. But it, it's very clear that this is really bad. The radiation wind, uh, the radiation fallout is, is coming their way from all of these different uh, missile bases. And we do get a report from the president. Finally, there's some official reporting about what's happening. They, the president has this uh, message. Looks like they survived. The extent of the damage, according to the president, is unknown. But preliminary reports show that we have been damaged at our just our military installations and industrial centers. But of course, people are looking outside in Lawrence, Kansas, the streets, wondering, were not either of those? What happened? There is a ceasefire, they say. But don't worry, the Soviet Union has had equal damage. During this hour of sorrow, I wish to assure you that America has survived this terrible tribulation. There has been no surrender, no retreat from the principles of liberty and democracy for which the free world looks to us for leadership. We remain undaunted before all but Almighty God. We are counting on you, on your strength, your patience, your will and your courage to help rebuild this great nation of ours. God bless you all. While this very positive by itself message is being shown, there's a montage of, of damage uh, showing showing on the screen what will actually happen. People dying, people starving, people washing out of a single water basin, uh, shots of orphan children by themselves. This is quite a, a powerful contrast here. Also, interesting, even though it came out at the same time when, when Reagan was president, they purposely tried to avoid a voice. I think originally they tried was similar to Reagan in his cadence, and they, they changed it. This is the genius of what I think Meyer and Hume and probably even ABC Stoddard understood, was that if you make it sound like Reagan, it pulls you out of yeah. the movie. It makes you suddenly very conscious that this may be a propaganda film. If you don't, you have some generic kind of presidential voice that sounds very stately. You can do that, 
But then look at the text of the of the speech. It's filled with Reagan esque, oh yeah, hawk like jingoism about American exceptionalism and about how democracy will win over all and that we will overcome and this will all make us safe and you know ultimately they cannot defeat us. And it is that that sort of kind of raw raw almost uh, nationalism, which regrettably we've been re-witnessing again in our contemporary moment that leads to that denial that leads to that the notion of American exceptionalism and that that we have somehow marshaled these resources and a political system and a military that cannot be conquered and that will win out overall allows us to also hide in this basis of we're safe and we don't have to worry about it and we don't have to be as obsessed as the Brits were in threads about watching it in the pub and screaming when anyone changed the channel we don't have to watch the channel we don't have to turn on the news every night now we do now msnbc and fox news toggle back and forth as the number one tv network in the in america because we're now after the last four years preoccupied with apocalyptic concerns around (laughs) the world but back then we didn't have to think about it and as the character in the movie says well he didn't tell us anything he didn't tell us who started it and another character says but does it matter? And the other character says, would you believe him anyway? Right. And it does this, it's kind of a brilliant insidious way of saying, if we try to hit you over the head with the politics and the message, would that be as persuasive than simply saying it doesn't matter? Let's, let's look at what really, what really matters here is humanity it's, is at stake. And we can't keep pretending that this isn't as dire as, is a lot of people like you, Tim, know and deal with every single day in your career. But how, how do you get someone to believe that that's true? It takes that's things the, like a, that's the issue, right? How do you persuade them? It takes a missile scare in Hawaii to get people to care for about five to ten minutes. Yeah. Um, it takes things like that, unfortunately. Getting stories to matter, but then in getting them to matter long enough to get people to do anything about right. it. That goes back to Plato. Goes back <laughs> yeah. to- if you can figure that out, I'm sure you could you could uh, have quite a career. Well, I've been working on it for 50 yeah. years, and I don't have easy answers. So other people who tried to do something about it uh, were were, Dal- were the Dahlberg family. We, got, we have dad, we've got mom, uh, Denise, younger daughter, Jolene, and the son, Danny. They all get into the shelter, but not everybody does. The, the, the family dog doesn't get inside the shelter. They a really crazy heartwarming scene is the dog barking outside and the dad saying, we can't bring the dog in. There's no food. Uh, but they have to just listen to the dog um, you know, bark while it's being hit by the radiation. The son... Almost uh, is able to get inside safe, but he is looking at the detonation when it happens. So he's blinded. His retinas are burned. The family doesn't know how long they're going to be in there. Denise doesn't know where her fiance Bruce is. They eventually do let someone in. They let Steven, the guy who was hitchhiking, Steve Gutenberg. Uh, they let they let Steven in, uh, which is helpful because he, one, he brings food. And two, he can maybe help Danny a little bit here. And he's very grateful for the fact that he knows what's happening. He knows about radiation a little bit, at least. And he knows that he needs to be inside. Um, so they're able to, to stay in there. But only five days go by before the family starts to not know what day it is. Denise is starting to freak out. She goes stir crazy, not knowing where her fiance is. And she actually runs outside. Stephen uh, r- promises the dad, All right, I'm going to go get Denise. I'm going to bring her back in. And he tells her about radiation, the fact that it's invisible. But look, look at all the cattle that are around here. They're all dead. No, it only looks that way. You can't see it. You can't feel it. Uh, And you can't taste it. Ah! But it's here. 
right now, all around us. It's going through you like an x-ray right into your cells. What do you think killed all these animals? You know, she gets eventually brought inside back into the shelter, but not before she, there's this really sad scene of her holding her wedding dress. And it's it's also really clear that they've been out, an, outside long enough that they they might be exposed too much radiation for their bodies to be able to survive. But it's, it's one of those things. It seems fine at first, but then it gets worse and worse. And the movie does show that. When it's finally, quote unquote, safe to go outside, maybe after two weeks, we find out someone else tried to get into the shelter. It's not a scene in the movie, but when they try to open the door... There's a body kind of um, kind of sitting right outside uh, that I think is a really powerful little small scene there. They attend a little bit of a religious ceremony out in a burned out church. There's this sermon about how they should be grateful that they're survived and that they're alive. They should be happy that the nuclear war destroyed the destroyers of the earth. It's a fascinating little religious ceremony there. We give thanks to thee, O Lord God Almighty, for rewarding thy servants. And those who fear thy name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The kind of brilliant, if pretty daring, I think, and pretty uh, provocative way in which faith and religion and church is is subtly thrown in here is also, I think, a testament to the filmmakers. And I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give human credit for that. Because remember, at the same time that um, this is a, a small town Midwestern community for whom that belief system is still a vital way in which society remains operable, the larger forces within the evangelical movement had um, not only fully become aligned with the conservative movement, but brought Ronald Reagan to power around a pro-hawk, pro-nuclear defense. And the more people started to rebel against this idea, the madness of the atomic arms race, the more evangelical leaders like Phyllis Schlafly and Jerry Falwell started going out on the record and making the craziest things like, you know, God gave America nuclear arms. Or like I said, Jerry Falwell going on 60 Minutes to promote the arms race against Brandon Stoddard before this movie aired. I mean, there's something so quite ridiculous and insane about the collusion between the evangelical movement and the conservative movement around apocalyptic arms races that doesn't, to this day, is something I don't think, to be perfectly honest, we're still suffering the ramifications of that kind of alignment between the religious political and the, and the global political and, and We've seen this with the last four years, um, and that that hasn't played out yet. It's 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 so fascinating because for me, my religious experience growing up, uh, I went to you know Sacred Heart Catholic schools for most of my life, and the people there that were teaching were you know fiercely anti nuclear weapons, uh, to the point where you know one of my religion teachers would take people you know once a year to the atomic test site and would protest, and we would get officially arrested. By stepping over the line, it was part of a big ceremony. You know, no one would, wasn't trying to like uh, infiltrate or anything like it's Area 51 or anything. Uh, but, you know, we would get arrested and go through this process. And it was a whole thing. And 
it's so interesting that there's this other part of religion that is, uh, these things are, are, are gifts from God. It just reminds me of the Planet of the Apes movie, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, where people are religiously worshipping an ICBM cobalt-laced nuclear weapon and kind of how that's going to bring about the, the, the cleansing of the world. And it's so it's very just foreign to me. Phyllis Schlafly said, the atomic bomb is a marvelous gift that was given to our country by a wise God. <laughs> um, but what, what, of course, while, while Oppenheimer is quoting from, uh, right, not Prometheus, the Bible. Yeah, exactly. Quoting yeah. From... He's, he's referencing a different religious belief system to say, what have I done? You know, I'm the destroyer of worlds. Right. What's also interesting here is, uh, this is something that, that my book goes into is that the white house turned to these outside allies who were already aligned with them politically around particularly mutual interests. Mm-hmm. Why the arms race is mutually a mutual shared interest. interest. Mutually assured interest. There we go. Perfect. And turned to them and said, um, why don't you guys carry a bit of the water force in trying to hijack the narrative of this film? So which we'll get into later. But yeah. um, so the film itself does a critique of how the the faith leaders of the community were kind of left bereft and un, un, unable to figure out how to help their community survive. But that plays into what was going on outside of this film of the faith leaders in this side of the evangelical movement saying, what, what do you mean? We need more, build more bombs, more bombs. The church scene in this one is definitely that contrast of, well, this sermon is fascinating because grateful to be alive. I'm, I guess I'm happy that the people who destroyed the world are are dead, but there's it's not clear of who those people are. Does that, do they mean the Soviet Union or do they mean like, Washington, D.C.? They don't necessarily even know. I, I think people are still trying to figure out what's going on. Um, Stephen promises to bring the family, Denise and Danny, to the to University of Lawrence Hospital because uh, it's close by and, and get some treatment for both of them. One of the scenes that is so, so um, impactful is Danny, who's blind, is asking Stephen when they're on a horseback trying to get to, to the university. Danny asks, you know, what do you see? Because they had been in a shelter for two weeks, maybe. And Stephen looks around and says, oh, you know. Cows, telephone poles, usual stuff. But in in reality, what he sees are dead cows and bodies being loaded into a truck. And it's just a very intense scene and it never stops. Um, They make it to Lawrence. Danny's able to maybe get a little bit of help from a doctor character, uh, Sam, but it's it's clear that eventually they're not going to be able to do anything for him there. It might've been too bad of, of a burn. And we meet uh, again, Steven, a few, a few days later, a few weeks later, while they're you know trying to figure out, should they go back? Are they going to leave Danny for treatment? It's clear. Steven is also suffering. He's, his hair is falling out. He has various uh, kind of wounds across his body and, and things aren't going well for him. Denise, the same way uh, she's clearly not doing well. So they decide to bring everybody back. But one, one scene that was very effective is uh, you see Stephen trying to find Denise in this gymnasium, especially where, this, where the Jayhawks play, uh, trying to find Denise in this just sea of people. And this is the most I think we see of any extras at one time. And it is just a powerful uh, scene of everyone uh, you know, ill, dying, no noise, really. No one's making any sort of noises. People are just laying there and, and uh, I- you know, in, in their suffering. And eventually... Stephen does find Denise. They decide that they're going to leave, and she's very sad because obviously she she knows she's not going to get the wedding and the life that she wanted. This is great, very well written scene where Denise says that someone came by and gave me a ribbon 
to put in my hair, but she has no hair anymore. She can't put the ribbon and it won't stay. And Stephen takes his hat off and shows that he's also, you know, suffering the same thing. And they have a little bit of a shared moment here. And this is one of those scenes that I think is very direct in terms of what it's trying to say, but also is done so effectively here. And this is one quote I did find here from Nicholas Meyer, the director. He said, he he did all these x-rays. He said, all right, don't look at the camera. Don't look at anything else. And just reminded them, you know, look, a nuclear war had just happened. No one would leave this room alive. You're on your last legs. And I think people, even though a lot of these people probably aren't actors, the, the studio of Lawrence and the people that were there really made this such a powerful movie uh, in that very powerful scene. And I think it really does show the fact that Lawrence, Kansas is not just a location, but really is a character uh, here quite a bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a scene that is one another one of those that just resonates, right? It's stuck with you. Um, and Part of it is, is I want to give a little bit of a shout out to Gutenberg because for all of the fact that he's become almost comical in how he's, how bad he is at acting um, and how he managed to have a lifelong career in part because he had the greatest chest in Hollywood, um, which by the way, you see a lot, you see a lot. I mean, I, I want to ask Nick again to kind of, kind of, what was the thinking of him being shirtless or, and, you know, even the clothing is just like, uh, I mean, it's almost like a, uh, it's almost homoerotic. I say that as a gay person, but like you're, you're, they're like, they're getting the money on the screen for this very handsome leading man, charming, but not particularly sophisticated actor. But that's what makes that moment so powerful is that he risks his cinematic image to be seen losing his hair right it to me that's the affective politics that's playing out here in the storytelling it's not the explicit politics of all oh, russia you know it's destroying our our civilization it's the emotional and and feeling that you get from seeing oh my god he's one of the world's most beautiful men he's turned into a figure in a horror movie right and the first half of the movie is this kind of bucolic soap opera right about a midwestern but the second half of the movie is a horror show and he allows himself to be turned into basically a zombie character from, you know, uh, we now watch zombie movies all the time now. So it's everyone put down their protest signs and their plowshares and showed up to be extras in this movie thinking this may give them either a fun day to do or something, you know, they will never a chance to never get again or maybe even break into Hollywood as an actor. But according to my uh, discussion with the mayor, David Longhurst, it, when they all showed up that day for the gym scene and you saw them and they each saw each other in the makeup and hair, it was unbelievably sobering. It went from, hey, we get the day off school. Let's go play a part in a Hollywood movie to this could happen to us. And it, it just resonated with the community in a way that was suddenly very powerful. And because it was so unexpected up until that point, it was like really cool to be on a movie set. And suddenly they're playing themselves, experiencing this and going through the worst, worst part of the fallout. And, uh, and I, it, it left them all pretty shaken up by that. And it was no longer a fun, fun thing to do. Um, and it took on an added impulse in the community and which is why they all showed up for the screenings and why they picked up even more around their their activities around around the arms race and the free. One of the scenes that I think is very memorable, and I, I previewed this a little bit earlier, is all the farmers now are getting together in the rubble of a building. And a local representative of, I think, either the government rebuilding effort. I always thought this person was like a local civil defense uh, team member. But it's someone with the, trying to speak from a little bit of an authority telling the farmers what they need to do next now. 
So what we want you to do now, burn out your current crops, start decontaminating the soil, and plan next spring's planting. Crop selection must consider plants least susceptible to ultraviolet radiation and yields for human rather than animal consumption. Can you explain what you mean by scraping off the top layers of my topsoil? Uh, exactly that, Jim. You just take the top four or five inches of your topsoil. Yeah, and do what with it? We're talking 150, maybe 200 acres a man in here. Suppose you find a hole where you can drop all this dead dirt. What kind of topsoil is that going to leave you for raising anything? Jim, your numbers are Where'd you get all this information, John? All this good advice out of some government pamphlet? It all sounds fine. It's the kind of stuff you would read in a in a survivor pamphlet. It's a it's a reminder, by the way, that this whole this whole movie, including the title of the movie, came almost directly out yeah. of one of those nuclear war pamphlets. I mean, they pretty much wrote the name the day after in the pamphlet and described what the fallout would be like and they just dramatized it i think he read i think it was like effects of nuclear weapons which is a an office of technology assessment report and there's also another one which is how to survive a nuclear you know survival nuclear war tactics uh those kinds of things that are i'm sure helpful uh in some situations but then it's when you have all this happen at once and then when you're told to actually implement some of the things you get the answers uh you get the kind of questions that the, the the Dahlberg father said, you know, how do I do that? How do I go about and um, scrape four inches of topsoil of hundreds of acres? Where do I put the soil when it's done? He called it dead dirt. Yeah. He said, like, where do I put the dead dirt? And I'm like, that's alliteration. Yeah, yeah, that's good writing. How are you supposed to grow something when your soil is gone now? Your topsoil, which is the stuff that, where the nutrition is at. And it's very clear. These are good questions. But the people who are, are providing the guidance have no idea. The pamphlet doesn't get to that level of detail. And I'm sure someone from a civil defense team might say, well, look, we've talked about this and here are the answers. But sure, the point of this is when you present this not only in this one town, but across the world, all of a sudden you now are faced with supply chain loss. People don't know what necessarily what to do. The information's not there. There's no power to be able to, you know, apparently EMP has knocked out all of like the farm equipment, maybe. So how do you do all of these things? And it's just you're you're presented with this situation where it's like, yeah, I survived for two weeks in a shelter, um, but now my my daughter is dying, my son is blind, I don't have any know what to do. And then it even gets worse when dad goes home to his farm and he sees a bunch of people squatting, cooking something on a, on a fire outside their house, and dad is just trying to get people to leave, but. He eventually sees that everybody's like catatonic and there's some kids in the group. So he might have let them stay a little bit. But then someone shoots him uh, with a gun and starts. Uh, you hear the wife and daughter, um, Jolene, hearing the gunshot inside the house. You don't know what happens next to them or anything, but it's clearly something. Stuff is breaking down. I think if there was an act three to this movie, it would get even darker. I find that scene so, so, so traumatizing. It to me, I call it the I call it the deliverance scene. <laughs> yeah. Because the characters don't even speak. You just see this little girl holding a tin can sitting on top of a dead cow. And you know that the other character, you know, ran off to get a gun mm -hmm. and you, you know, you know where it's going, but it's, it's, it's traumatizing because you see again in the same way that you saw with threads, society will completely fall apart and you'll be left to these almost zombie like stage of people operating with no collective cause or bearing it's 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 every man for himself and every family for themselves and that's a pretty horrifying thing you know i, I want to just mention that you know again this is about the 
drafters of those nuclear war pamphlets gave us the, the kind of the, the blueprint for this movie, but they didn't tell the whole story. And that's what this movie gets to do. Yeah. It's also kind of ironic that this movie is in many ways inspired by those nuclear war pamphlets uh, that were science fiction in the same way that Dr. Strangelove and War Games were inspired by real life events and Failsafe were mm-hmm. actually inspired by versions of real life events that occurred. So it's just kind of fascinating how, ho- like, again, Hollywood and, and real world politics kind of meet in, in unique and uh, in different ways here around fiction and nonfiction scripted and inspired by character driven and incident. This is a, clearly a critique of the government's you know, atomic civil defense plans. Don't right. worry. <laughs> Two weeks, it'll be all over, and it clearly won't. So again, the, the, the point of shattering American denialism is really at what's at stake here. It isn't about an indictment of the Cold War. Yeah, the chapter on rebuilding civilization is always the shortest chapter in these pamphlets. Um, <laughs> I, I've seen this movie a number of times now. This is probably maybe my 10th viewing for this one and every time I, I always think about oh my gosh the people cooking outside of the house they're cooking the wife and daughter I always think that that's what's happening <laughs> and until you see the shot of when the gunshot goes off and the people inside the house you see the wife and daughter turn right I always think that oh my god he's gonna see that they're eating the kids I just know it I could because I I've seen the same thought. <laughs> yeah uh, but it's not that case. Maybe it was an early script version, and then they... Uh... It'll be in the AMC Walking the Dead series. Yeah, at some point. It's been done in all the other post-apocalyptic movies where they, you know, it does end up eventually Someone's leading to cannibalism. Yeah. So we see a few more characters, and I'll run through these quicker. Uh, Airman McCoy, he survives the initial blast, but he, he, you know, puts on a quilted blanket. That's all he's got for protection. And he kind of tries to find his way to, first to his family, and then he learns when he reaches runs into a pack of people really walking catatonic like zombies asking you know saying they're going to go to this town because the radio told them there are people there he asked about his hometown of sedalia where his wife and, and was going to go to with their with their kid and he says you know is anyone do you know what's going on there and he, the guy responds there ain't no sedalia no green ridge no windsor no nothing you know, McCoy is not doing well. He uh, is, is vomiting, he's bruising, his teeth and hair are falling out. And we never really clear what happens to him, but I'm pretty sure when we see people being buried in a mass grave, I, I imagine that he's one of the people, McCoy, that, that's in that um, grave. So no one no one makes it out of here uh, in a good situation, including the people in the hospital. You know, Dr. Oaks, he gets to the hospital. Uh, it's being overrun. There are people that need help from everywhere around but they don't have that many supplies. You know, power's out. They talk about the EMP. That's the reason why everything's being shut down. And there's a, a, a really good scene of uh, Oaks operating on people with flashlights and instruments being boiled with like be, uh, water heated by butane. And but that's not going to last all that long. And and now they're trying to figure out, you know, what what is what is life going to be like? Is it is it good somewhere else outside of Lawrence, or is everywhere you know like Lawrence? And he starts to think about the fact that his his wife and, and children are probably also dead. He could have been with them in Kansas City if he didn't come to teach class that day in, in Lawrence. And and while he's talking to this over with a nurse played, I think, by Joe Beth Williams, there's this uh, very fa- very fam- famous scene of a cockroach uh, walking across the, a, little, a little part of the, the counter. And sure enough, Dr. Robarts, uh, Dr. Oak says... Uh, Impervious. What? It's radiation. You are looking at man's legacy. 
the only guaranteed survivor of a nuclear war. And this is a direct reference from Jonathan Schell's uh, writing, which is in The Fate of the Earth. There's a, a chapter in that book called Republic of Grass and Insects, which is about the fact that the only two things that would survive nuclear war would be insects that have resistance to radiation and grass, because it can sometimes thrive under those kinds of conditions. But eventually, radiation levels drop to the point where people can leave the building. People start to do that. But now there's thousands and thousands of people that need help at the hospital. Dr. Oakes is overwhelmed. He starts having hallucinations of that uh, his fellow like nurse, uh, his wife, Helen. He's clearly suffering from, from radiation sickness. And he decides, in a very touching moment with Sam, that he's going to get a ride to Kansas City. And even though he knows his wife's not there, he knows that that's not a safe place to be. He wants to die in his in his home. And he, he gets there. He sees uh, people starting to actually be shot with these firing squads. And he arrives at his, his house, and he sees a watch that his wife... There's a, a quick you know, close up of him putting a watch on his on his wife wrist earlier in the movie. So it's clearly it's burnt out. He he knows now that she's dead. And while he gets to his house, right, there's this group of squatters who don't say any words, if I remember right. And they're there and he wants to kick them out of his home. Just emotional, powerful, emotional reaction. But then he starts breaking down and crying. And the stranger walks over and, and, and goes to comfort him. And that's just one of the, I think that's the scene like that actually ends the movie. There's a, what we call a callback in that scene where he hands the doctor, Dr. Oaks, the, he hands him a, um, an orange. And mm-hmm. earlier in the movie, Joe Beth Williams says to him, you want an orange? It may be the last one we ever get. Uh, so there's this idea of fruit and, uh, mm-hmm. and if you want to get super critical cultural studies, we can go down that, that rabbit hole. This is Hume and um, Nick Meyer calling around, uh, calling up, conjuring up the original sin and mm-hmm. uh, taking us back to the Garden of Eden. And you can get into, you know, you've got your Prometheus over with Oppenheimer and you've got Genesis over with the day after. Here's, you know, this is my, my nod to the fact that, by the way, Nick Meyer is, I can tell you, truly one of the most brilliant intellectual minds the fact that he's made a career out of doing Hollywood narrative storytelling, and now he's back doing uh, the great books that he wrote, the kind of murder mystery books that he's so brilliant about, the re- reinventing Sherlock Holmes and all hmm. that, should should not take away from the fact that the guy is a walking... I mean, actually, you sit at his feet and listen to him. He's an incredibly powerful storyteller who's very conscious of the choices that he's making um, and, and deliberative. So um, I think, you know, again, this is me just offering a, a, a nod to, to the man. But uh, he, is, he is my atomic auteur, if you will, <laughs> who features very prominently, hopefully, in, in, in this book. And, uh, That's excellent. And uh, deserves, I think, even more credit for what he managed to do with the limited resources that he had. And again, he was, he was caught in the middle between the network struggling to balance a set of stakeholders and the government now suddenly threatening to shut it all down. Well, let's let's get into that now because we we we've gone over the over longer than I thought because of but it's because of how interesting the different facts are here. Uh but just before we do that, the movie ends with John Lithgow on the radio uh trying to reach someone else out there. Um you know, this is Lawrence Kansas, is anyone out there and there's no response. Hello. Is anybody there? Anybody at all? And then there's a disclaimer on the screen, just to remind people, 
the catastrophic events you've witnessed in all likelihood less are less severe than the destruction would actually occur if in the event of a full nuclear strike against the United States. It is hoped that the images of this film will inspire the nations of this earth, their peoples, and their leaders to find the means to advert that fateful day. The Act 3, which you had talked about earlier. By the way, isn't it fascinating how radio will be survived uh, in, in all three threads, Testament and in this movie, radio is the one thing to survive. So electronic communication doesn't completely go away, but we can give up uh, Snapchat and TikTok. Um. <laughs> oh, the one benefit. Yeah. Um, very interesting. Well, let's get super critical here about some of the stuff I actually was here to talk to you about instead of just uh, run through the plot. Cause I'm, I know you're aware of the plot, but let's get into the stuff that I want to learn more about. First of all, which is the the war between Hollywood and, and the White House and the Pentagon and about trying to build a broadcast um, and make the day after and the, the power the storytellers have on being able to change, well, nuclear policy or at least, you know, get people thinking about these topics, you know, have an act three that's, that's, that's interesting here. So the context for this movie when it came out in, in 1983, a downing uh, by the Soviet Union of... KAL uh, 007, an, an airliner that got people pretty, you know, pretty intense, uh, wondering, you know, what the Soviet Union might have been up to. There was a bombing of a Marine barracks in Lebanon. Uh, there was, which we now know, a very, very close, dangerous moment uh, with a NATO exercise, Able Archer in 1983, where the Soviet Union thought that maybe NATO was moving on them with a nuclear attack and a, a full-scale invasion. Very, very intense. Um, and when people were polled in 1983, you know, how do you feel about nuclear war? Do you think it's going to happen to you? About half of the American population were convinced that they were going to die in a nuclear war. This is just a, a tinderbox of a moment for when this movie was, was released here, but it almost didn't happen, right? The what, what was some of the forces that were pushing against the, the making of this movie and then ultimately uh, its release and then pushing back on maybe what impact it might have had, the spin war? Well, so um, the contestations between Washington, D.C. over what Hollywood does or doesn't do go back to the very dawn <laughs> of the film industry. And I can't take up any more of your time than, than to go into that. But for often, uh, more often than not, the made-for-television movie space was where so much more political and cultural and social interventions were happening. But because it was TV, A, um, critics and journalists and politicians weren't as worried about it, but also because it was TV is why it had the greatest impact and effect. So we saw just tremendous amount of cultural transformation occur in response to a series of African-American movies, which is what brought me into this whole space to begin with. It was watching Brian's song and the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, which by the way is fictional, um, that led me to, as a precociously weird nine-year-old say, oh, I want to go to Hollywood and be a teacher and make movies that you can learn about social issues that, but I had also been going to Hebrew school after school. Um, I, I grew up in the South. So that was all happening in real time. But then I'm watching um, Hollywood movies like the boy with the green hair. I don't know if you'll ever know what that is. No, no, yeah. The boy with the green hair is a full blown metaphor, allegorical film set in the fifties that is about anti-Semitism in Europe. But so we're watching that in Hebrew school and uh, and I'm watching these race themed TV movies in in elementary school. And I'm thinking that's fantastic the way these things are getting told. But what I wasn't aware until I came to Hollywood and made a career out of making these kinds of movies is that these don't get made easily because there's a lot of stakeholders against telling stories like this. There's a there's the resistance by the audience itself at being taught lessons. 
the difference between a threads and a day after is threads was in the BBC environment where it only had a few channels to watch and almost all of them were showing nature films, right? And showing documentaries about politics. So to have a docudrama that was a political film wasn't as completely radical as our instance where the day after is showing on, on the same channel that shows the flying nun, right? It's, so it's stark different world and context that somehow made these TV movies that started to appear in the 70s and 80s even more powerful because feature films weren't telling those stories. Um, they did in the 60s and they hadn't necessarily thrived. And we were well into the whole franchise Jaws meets Death Star era of Hollywood filmmaking by 1983, right? We're in the Indiana Jones era. Weirdly enough, all three of those franchises I've covered on the podcast because they have nuclear dimensions. There you go. So they get buried under the genre, B-movie genre, big budget franchise storytelling because ultimately you wanted to turn them into theme parks and plush toys. Mm -hmm. Whereas <laughs> these movies were about trying to go play into your living room and teach you a lesson that you will then live with and change your mind. Um, so the, the legacy of Hollywood uh, in many ways challenging, not just the political uh, concerns and positions of our government, but around um, sociocultural norms that we needed to shake up. So the same guy that made The Day After was the same guy that had got, that managed to get ABC after school specials on the air that were morality tales in scripted form that were, have its homage to 1950s health and education films. It's the same guy who got Schoolhouse Rock on Saturday morning cartoons in between ads for cornflakes and Cheerios. The same guy that was teaching civics lessons to kids in Saturday morning cartoons and teaching morality lessons to teenagers after school wound up running the TV movie division and saying, now how do I persuade adults to think about these ideas in a way that will draw them in using the Hollywood cinematic narrative approach? And then what he wound up having to do was buck the powers that be less often at ABC, more often in the advertising space. To your point, a lot of these advertisers were anxious. Do I want to sell my car in a movie about post-apocalyptic American Hiroshima. Only if it's EMP proof. Only exactly. if it's EMP proof, then you want to have it right after that scene. The only car with yeah. uh, with with a with a cage around our electronics to make it safe. And over here in Hollywood, was people like Brandon Stoddard saying, "Oh, um, you know what? For our audience, this is one of one of my favorite quotes I ever got. For our audience, television is the only book on the shelf. Hmm. Where else are they going to learn about these things?" But then for TV movie producers like Stoddard and like all the others that, that came out of the 70s and 80s that inspired me, um, they, a lot of them had come out of the Vietnam War and gone into broadcast journalism and found it very limited in their ability to reach larger audiences about these issues. So the example I give here is Ted Koppel made this you know, Peabody Award winning series about the atomic bomb called Second to None in 1979. And no one tuned in. It was buried within the evening news special, but it didn't change the pulse. But the other thing that was going on at this moment when the, all these various contingencies and stakeholders came to an end is that there had already emerged a pretty virulent nuclear freeze movement all over the globe. Right. 
um, whether it was the center of Australia or over in the American bases in the United Kingdom, um, a lot of people had come to realize this as the seminal issue of our day and had already taken on this battle. And in Lawrence, Kansas, as, as I talked about before, the battle lines had been drawn before the producers of this movie even showed up of people who came out of the anti-war movement of the 70s and walked right into the anti uh, arms race movement and the nuclear freeze movement of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and you had both sides starting to develop a very deep, entrenched partisan position around these things. And in comes these intrepid TV movie people who say, oh, well, you know, we got a great rating with um, Roots. We did pretty well with Holocaust. Remember the miniseries Holocaust? Um, social issues are, are what we do best. Let's just let's do this. And again, as you know, you mentioned Stoddard was inspired by China syndrome. Well, if we can do a fictional version of China syndrome, we can do a fictional version of the day after. Of course, then three weeks later, the real world version of the China syndrome happened in Three Mile Island. Four years later, an even far more worse version happened with Chernobyl. So um, as, as benign as this sometimes seems, I think the book is an attempt to kind of expose another side of the story, which is the storytelling. Um, And uh, the debates that went on here uh, included uh, the strategies that were implemented by the White House in the um, White House Office of Communications, which at that time was run by David Gergen, who I really hope will allow me to interview him Mm -hmm. because I really want to understand what were all the dynamics here operating here. There... It, it would be too easy and, in fact, too reductive to say that the backlash from the government to this film was because of heightened anxiety about the anti-nuclear message. There's every reason to think that, that this movie could have triggered a mass hysteria moment in the public comparable to War of the Worlds. Sure. Which would be something that the government would not only be ill-prepared to deal with, but you don't know what the long-term consequences of that would be. So there was probably some clear and rational reason for wanting to do this. It's only when you get into the William F. Buckley's of the world. You get where it gets weird. Yeah. Where it gets weird, where he comes from such a deep-rooted, if brilliant, ideological position where he just simply cannot afford to allow himself to imagine that he might be wrong. Buckley was never wrong about anything his entire life, right? And that's kind of what makes him fascinating and also terrifying is that he could speak with such complete confidence about issues that were purely an ideological idea in his head that were not rooted in any kind of empirical evidence and he could never be dissuaded otherwise. He, he was so convinced that this was a, a movie that was what he qu- called it, propaganda to debilitate the United States against the Soviet yes. Union, right? This was like a plot. It was a plot. It was a hoax. It was another form of outside interference, you know, someone coming in and trying to play around with our domestic and international politics and our standing in the world. They wanted to cripple us, Um, which is also completely ludicrous when you go and actually meet with the actual players in the story. Mm -hmm. But my my hope is that we don't look at this only through a partisan lens. it's that's hard for me because I have a, a position obviously around this topic. I have had since I read Richard Rhodes or, or saw Hiroshima Monomore, but uh, I want to understand uh, 
And in this book, I, I, I still am doing more research to look further and deeper into this beyond the surface of, you know, why did a Falwell and a Schlafly align themselves around something that so, seems so completely antithetical to their theology? Right. Um, and why was Gergen, who's a really brilliant, you know, he's called the master of the game for a reason, because he was so brilliant at orchestrating a, uh, propaganda campaigns and communication strategies on behalf of Reagan's positions that, you know, he really brilliantly crafted this campaign with politicians and policy stakeholders going out and um, publishing op-eds in every newspaper around, going on radio shows. Um, what's interesting is the Pentagon didn't want to do it. They refused to get in the fray. Hmm. So it was left to statesmen and public intellectuals and then these wackadoodle evangelicals <laughs> mm -hmm. to kind of carry the water for this campaign. When they could not get ABC to take it down, A, they refused to participate, as you mentioned, but when they couldn't get them to re-edit the movie, they decided to hijack the narrative of the film. They decided that the takeaway from this movie was not that war is bad, but rather that the American position of deterrence is the only way to go. There, there is some evidence to suggest, as you, as you note in your, you have in your notes, that some of that might have worked. Some people come away going, oh, more power to you. You know, this is a, the contrast of the people you talked about. People put their own views onto this f film. And I, I think it does happen, too, when people talk about the impact of it. The Physicians for Social Responsibility, which was a, a very powerful, influential movement um, of, of people on, that were trying to, you know, produce better clarity on these nuclear issues and try to reduce the danger. Uh, they were convinced, hey, look, there appears to be a, a greater desire on the part of uh, more people to learn more about this issue and learn about how can they become active in the part of the search for solutions. But there is a poll that was cited here from George Washington University that found that support for nuclear freeze movement was basically the same level before the movie was broadcasted. Even to the point, I haven't seen the, the actual poll, but there's a reference to a Time Magazine story where a poll was said that more people after watching the movie supported Reagan's nuclear policies, believing that the risk of nuclear war was actually less likely, which is just a fascinating thing when you watch this movie. That's not the takeaway that, that I have of that, but then how do you measure... Now, how do you measure impact? Because if you read some you know, data points that show this movie was impactful, right? Ronald Reagan wrote in his diary, he had a Camp David screening, he says it was very impactful for him. Depending on what autobiography or biography you read of Reagan, you know, this is someone who wanted to find a solution to nuclear war, to nuclear danger. Sometimes his solution was, if we build missile defense, it'll just mean that we don't have to worry about it anymore. So if we have missile defense, let's get rid of nuclear weapons because they won't do anything. So let's get rid of them. Other To the point other as well, when he tried to, at one point was so close, maybe, maybe really close, talking with Gorbachev in, in Reykjavik, getting really close to, to saying, let's just get rid of the bombs. Let's get, why do we need this anymore? We're both powerful you, nations. By the way, can you imagine being an interpreter at in that moment? So fascinating, Reagan yeah. says, Let's just... Why stop now? Let's just get rid of all of them. I love and, the transcripts the, for those. And the generals in the background having a complete, total terror panic attack. <laughs> and, and then but, it getting shut down because of missile defense. And they yeah. were convinced that they just needed to do those actual missile defense tests and all of those things. But at least there was some stuff. There was the, the INF Treaty, which was the In Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. Uh, until recently was our uh, arms control agreement that got rid of an entire class of, of, of weapons and missiles, uh, which has now been uh, overturned and we're starting to introduce those weapons again. So we're getting dangerous again. But there was some progress. There's some movement. 
that were happening there. Um, so, Tim, let me talk about it in five contexts. One is, yeah. is whether or not public changed their minds turns out to be an almost irrelevant point to be made here. The truth of the matter is, is that Reagan went through four very clear uh, and now documented kind of, of changes. Um, one was, of course, his reaction to the film in his diary. It left me depressed. We've got to do something about this. Two was two weeks later, the, um, the military ran through an exercise with Reagan of what it might look like mm -hmm. if there was an attack. And Reagan turned to them and said, oh, yeah, like I've already seen it. It's called The Day After. So in many ways, this affirms this idea that, that the Reagan was uh, not an analytical theater thinker. He was an affective thinker. He understood geopolitics. And we know this from throughout the history. His, his staff would show him movies, uh, Hollywood movies, to help him understand complex political international relations topics. So if he didn't know anything about this world or this space, they would find a movie to show him mm. to help teach him about this. And that was how he learned and understood the world because that was the way he, that was the world he came from. So well, that's also of, a way a lot of people learn about nuclear issues is from watching Terminator two, you know? Yeah. It's the only book on the shelf. This is where your work is God's work, right? It's maybe the only podcast on the shelf is the only book on the shelf here. Hmm. So that's point three. So two weeks after watching the movie and being left depressed, he's now saying, oh, yeah, I know how it's all going to play out. I just watched it. It's called The Day After. And then three weeks later, he enters in a diary entry that says, you know what? Um, we've got George Schultz going on ABC right after this bomb movie because we, we know it's anti-nuke propaganda, but we're going to take it over and say it shows why we must keep on doing what we did. This is a personal diary entry. So this is, you know, we want to assume this is as authentic as it gets. Mm -hmm. But now what we know, to your point, is that after this movie aired, and in the context of all these other events, Reagan went through what historians refer to as Reagan's reversal. It's not my term. It's sure. their term, the historian's term where all of a sudden backdoor channels were introduced for the Soviet Union. I think it was in drop-off at that time, or drop-off was about to drop off. Right. And it was <laughs> the, the next guy who lasted for six months. And then this is pre-Gorbachev. There's now what we now know, that there were all of these backdoor communications opened up suddenly for the first time and a different set of rhetoric so up until this movie, we'd heard about Star Wars. We'd heard notions of a winnable nuclear war. All you need is a shovel. Um, the administration had been fairly bullish about a tactical nuclear war and the viability of a defense system against nuclear war, which we all knew was bogus. Right. Then you got the, the peacemaker deployments of, of right. even more powerful missiles. Yep. They thought that's what the trend was going to be. By the way, this is why the German distributor of the day after picked up the rights to the movie and released it theatrically, where it became one of the most successful movies in Germany because it coincided with the distribution of the Peacemakers no in kidding. Germany. Huh. Yeah. So all of a sudden, the day after was actually a huge box office hit in Europe because the there was the Pershing scare, right? Everyone was freaking out that we were putting Pershing missiles in the European arena to try to thwart all of the missiles sitting over on the other border so yeah this is again this weird conflagration of events and and uh and timing and circumstances and politics but also perspective arguments that are playing out on screen um are fascinating particularly in that viewpoint special afterwards which i i have to say to me 
as an intellectual thinker, right. I'm not an, I'm both affective and kind of wonky. Watching that viewpoint special where they, the world's most important public intellectuals, Elie Wiesel and Carl Sagan, and you know the mastermind of Vietnam and, and George Schultz off reading from some prepared statement somewhere. And I have to say, Ted Koppel's brilliant moderation of this event, where they're literally just sitting around, very matter-of-factly discussing the end of the world. It, it, to me, is one of the most horrifying things. And you brought up before, Sagan delivers really the, the karate chop, right? The coup de grace, the, the brilliant metaphor of two guys sitting in a room filled with gasoline throwing matches at each other. And, That's what and, and comparing... Doing whether it was a bigger deal if you had 2,000 matches or 3,000 matches. Yeah. It's like, no, it just, just takes one. Yeah. So in many ways, Carl Sagan is the answer to our question is, is it's not just who tells the story that controls the world, which is either a Native American proverb or a proverb statement by Plato. Mm -hmm. We don't know. <laughs> it's who tells the stories and how the stories are told. So this is why something like The Day After and Threads and Testament wound up having this kind of cumulative narrative impact on the world in that moment that years of news reports and documentaries had failed to do. And it comes back to your work on a daily basis. How do you really get people to care? This is this is where I, I think about this uh, a, a lot when I have great conversations about a nuclear war movie that left an impact, it seems, on people. And how do you make these today? Because they don't exist as much these days that nuclear weapons are more likely a MacGuffin or a plot device. They're not necessarily the, the theme of trying to, to convince people that this is a danger that still exists and all of that. And I think with this movie, it's so fascinating because... You people can either look at it and say this this left an impact on people. It was something that drove, you know, policy to, to more of a saner stance. But also, it very equally, as you mentioned before, it was a reflection of people's concerns, and it was not trying to like start a dialogue by from zero. It was building off of what people were thinking about on these, uh, you know, nuclear dangers. It was from a film perspective, it was trying to tell that particular story, and it tapped into a conversation. Yeah, even within just the people that were in Lawrence, uh, Kansas, you know, it was already kind of building off of that. So it didn't start it from zero. It, it wasn't like, say, On the Beach, which just inspired a ton of people. And even On the Beach had started to starting to tap into people's concerns about nuclear testing. So, you know, when I think about like, well, how do you do a movie like Threads or The Day After or Testament today? I, it, the thing is, is you can't just do a movie and then inspire people to do all of these things. It also has to hit something that people are already trying to maybe understand and process on their own. And now this helps to crystallize it potentially. But that's just my perspective as someone who's not uh, in this, you know, filmmaking or producing role. How do how do you think that uh, we could do this uh, to tell these stories a little bit you know, more today? Because it's not like the danger of nuclear war has gone away. Uh, the only thing that's gone away is the fact that TV movies aren't really a big you know, thing anymore where a hundred million people will watch the same thing and go to the water cooler the next day and talk about it. Well, so here's where um, perversely the COVID crisis and the delay in my book actually has allowed us now to have a framework to really think about these things more in a more contemporary and more relevant way. Two years ago, HBO releases a, a, a movie called Chernobyl, which you've covered in, in your podcast, right? 
Um, and it has gone on to have a, a long run in terms of critical acclaim. It's still winning awards two years later. Um, but it also got streamed online, including in Russia, where it was hugely popular in Russia, but it wouldn't be factored into HBO's rating system. So we may not have 100 million people in America watching a movie on one night, but we have 7 billion people who could be, who could be eventually finding their way to this movie legally and illegally through online streaming mechanisms. Now, what's fascinating about that is in response to Russians watching this Chernobyl miniseries and learning about history from a, a vantage point they've never heard before, the Russian government and Putin kicked in with a serious propaganda campaign, just like Gergen and the White House did with the Reagan administration to try to put a to try to put this in a box, right, to contain it, um, and have and are now coming out this year. Do you know about this? Yeah, There's a new Chernobyl movie that Russia's releasing, which is all about the heroism of the people of Chernobyl and the people who went in and stopped this from destroying the entire continent. And it tells the, and, the true villains, yeah. And that a CIA agent was responsible for this crash. Now, here in this instance, whether or not the filmmakers had meant to make this as a commentary about Soviet bureaucratic propaganda that has continued even in the post-Soviet age, particularly in the Putin era. Hard to say, I don't know, and I haven't done that research. But what we do know is that this was a shock to most Russians who had never heard this account or this version of the Chernobyl story hmm. and has caused them to reflect more about their current conditions in which so much of what goes on in the world is shielded and blocked from their awareness. Which leads me to my next point. There's a reason why Alexei Navalny produced and published a two-hour documentary about Putin on YouTube the day before he flew back to Russia a month ago and got arrested and launched a whole series of protests all over Russia in response to the authoritarianism of Putin's government and the unwillingness of Putin and his party to, to, uh, to speak to truth to power about what goes on, what's really going on in Russia. So, um, so we don't need a Brandon Stoddard anymore. All we, we all have YouTube and a cell phone, right? So there's, there's two things. The, the, the power of a TV movie like a Chernobyl should not be underdetermined under even in 2021 because it can live on other platforms. I'll give you another example. I made a TV movie, uh, which was about uh, a, a political satire about gays going on strike for marriage equality, which is a subject very, very close to my heart. No one watched it on, my, on the network that I made it for, where I happened to work at the time. But I have now found it on YouTube in dozens of languages with viewers that go well beyond what we received in that night on the broadcast cable network, on the cable network that it was on. So um, these stories now, it's, uh, it's almost a long tail distribution idea. Um, here's a long tail act advocacy role that these narratives can now play because the technology has changed. And that's the third part of, if you will, this book is that it's not just simply who tells the story and how the story is told, but it's the medium itself. At that moment, yeah, 100 million people in one night is a pretty potent, powerful thing. 
but cut to 30 years later, you can get 2 billion or more to watch it online, legally or illegally, and have an even bigger, larger geopolitical consequence. And you no longer need a powerful network in America like ABC to make it, or renowned filmmakers like, like um, Nick Meyer. All you need is a cell phone with a camera and Wi-Fi, and you can change the world, which is what Margaret Mead right? It's a kind of a version of the Margaret Mead, you know, never doubt that a small group of people can change the world because indeed that's all who ever have. Well, now it doesn't even take a group of people. And that, that is a really great point because with, with the idea of, you know, I was very jokingly dismissive of, of a TV movie being an impactful thing these days, but because it was meant to be like a crystallized ratings uh, thing you would do to be able to to get as many people at a, at a time with a relatively low budget and it would hit the thing people were interested in. But that still exists. It's just done differently and distributed. It could be a Netflix movie uh, where people are able to have a little bit more money to do something of, of interest to them if they think it's going to be a hit uh, and you'll get something like that. Or you're right. Or it's something people produce on their own that can have that kind of great impact. And it really is something I think a lot of people in, in the community that I work on, if you're in the side of the grassroots activist side, you know, organizations like Beyond the Bomb or Global Zero, they're all trying to do that. Everyone's trying to, how do we talk about intersectionality? How do we talk about potentially like climate change and nuclear weapons? Because they're all the science is connected them, but also you know the the idea of a, a danger that's not here today, but it will be. You know, but everyone can do something about it now. You know, the idea that we should do our Act Three as a prequel now, we should do it before Act One and Two happens. Um, you know, those are things I think everyone's trying to find a way to tell that story. And I, I'm glad that you were able to come on the podcast today to help us uh, articulate that a little bit better because it is something that you can watch these old movies from the Cold War and you can go, wow, this is crazy. Um, this is, but it's a, but it's back then, but no, it's still, the danger is still there today. And people are still trying to find ways to articulate that. But let's, let's wrap up here with, uh, what I normally do is our rating system where we'll rate the topic we're talking about in this case, the day after, uh, one out of five with one being, you know, something terrible. You wouldn't recommend this to any of your students and five being terrific. It's on the syllabus. Um, but I like to tailor the rating system because if I get super critical about the plot, I'm going to get the same way, uh, with our rating. So I, I've crunched the numbers here. I've talked to John Lithgow, uh, and his, and his science team about what we should be doing. And I've decided we'll rate the day after on a scale of one out of five, Car batteries for your ham radio after a nuclear war. Because according to the movie, right, one car battery is, uh, you know, scarcer than a hen's teeth. But if you got five of these car batteries, you're, you're in pretty good shape, either to communicate with the outside world or at least you got something to barter with for an, an orange or whatever else you happen to need. So I, I give this movie, if you would have asked me this, maybe not a couple of months ago, but like when I started this podcast, I would have put this movie relatively low because I was one of those people that compared it to the movies that are more visceral, like Threads or Testament and things like that. I think these days, the more and more I think about it, I haven't wrote down four here, but I'm going to put down 4.5. I think you've convinced me more when I started to listen more about the the intent behind the film, the thought put into it, kind of the, the place it had in history. Even if it's still not my favorite of these, I think it is such an essential watching for anybody here. I think a 4.5 is where I'm going to put this to. And the other main thing I want to, to note on here is not only is this movie great in terms of the, the, the cast, the story, I really like the fact that this movie gives voices to the concerns of people of Lawrence, the people of the citizens that were involved in the making of this. If, if that's all it accomplishes is providing a great venue for these individuals, these activists who worked so hard. Uh, I saw that there was a report that Nick Meyer gave them an early copy and said, just do what you want with this. And they started 
showing the movie and building a campaign before ABC or the Pentagon or David Gergen can stop them. Uh, I thought that was great. As long as that happened and that's something that's out there in the world and people can, can see it, I, I'm really happy that that's there. And that gives me an extra uh, 0.5 over there. So that's where I end up on this. What about you? Oh, um, I feel like I'm in an old episode of a, of a, of a, of a film's rating show. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Yeah, um, I know. I know. I have to say, I still give it a three for its aesthetic appeal because hmm. I, as despite all of my deep abiding love for everyone involved and in what they hope to do and how they go set about it, when you watch the movie, it's creaky. I'm going to watch War Games seven times over, um, but this movie is hard to sit through even once because it's still got TV movie aesthetics that just don't. Uh, you know, excite me. And by the way, I'm a, that just what held me back for a long time. I'm sure. Yeah. And so it's a three aesthetically. It's a 10 for impact. Nice. I can't, I can't deny because um, look, it was a cumulative narrative accretion and timing of this movie in that moment, in the consequences of everything that was going on in the larger world and in the white house and within all of these stakeholders that it, to me, still um, has had, uh, it's one of those moments. I mean, when you think about the fact that at least for the time being, even though according to the scientists, we are even closer to doomsday than we were back then. Um, but this took this crazy mad world of the Cold War and arms race and paused just enough for sane, humanitarian, evolved policy to intervene. That almost never happens. It almost never happens. I mean, only in, the, in a couple of instances, it's usually in response to war that humanity has changed its behavior. The only other exception is when the gay community started engaging in safe sex practices to try to stop a pandemic because no one else was willing to come to their aid. That's the only two instances where you've seen human nature preemptively stop what would look like to be the inevitable. And, and were and Reagan I, involved in both. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now you have, we're at a threshold moment again in human history with climate change and pandemics and hyper-partisan ideological rifts that are starting to build a new set of geopolitical, you know, uh, contestants, right? And it still comes back to Either Plato or that Native American. <laughs> he who tells the story controls the world. I would say it's good to know who the storytellers are, what the stories are they're telling, and where they're telling them. And if, if people want to listen to some more stories and try to get a, a more of a perspective on either this or something that's related, we've got a couple stuff we can recommend to, to individuals. I'll do mine uh, pretty quickly but because you've got some really great ones here. Uh, the first thing is I can't recommend your book yet because it's not out, but I'm sure when it is, we'll be, be promoting it because that's something that's great for people to be following um, everything that we talked about here. I hope we didn't give too much away uh, because um, one source that I've really enjoyed reading on this is Don Strover's uh, Facing Nuclear Reality 35 Years After the Day After, which is in, published in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists on their website in December 2018. Great, great look. I think that was around the 35th yeah, anniversary of the movie. Um, really terrific multimedia description of, of the background of the story. And it, it's going to be the, I would say, one of the um, touchstone 
discussions of this until your until your book is out. I'm sure. Um, I do recommend people check out as well. I'll put a link to this because it's kind of hard to find. The Physicians of Us for Social Responsibility put out a short film called The Last Epidemic, and it's about the medical consequences of nuclear war. And it was very uh, popular within the anti-nuclear freeze movement as a you know see here watch this 11 minute film and then let's talk about what the the kind of the, the, the reality of what this is trying to show you. And it's a was inspirational as well for I think some of the people who were writing this movie, uh, or at least kind of involved in the discussion and the spin war with it. Uh, I do recommend as a package here, if you, not maybe not hopefully the same day because uh, that would be really difficult on your psyche. But along with testaments and threads, because we in listen to this episode, listen to the other ones that we've done, it really gives you a good sense of what people were thinking as a time capsule on these topics in nineteen in the nineteen eighties. They all came out right around the same time, right around when I was born. So um, very weird timing in the history of the world. And then finally. We already mentioned a couple times Viewpoint, which was the TV news broadcast uh, by Ted Koppel uh, that was shown. Was it right after or was it the next day? Right right after. after. It's so it is just a very fascinating watch um, from the perspective of people talking about uh, this TV movie event, movie event, but also all of the different issues that were involved there. If you only watch it for something, watch the Carl Sagan uh, lines at the end. there. just really, really terrific. But what do you got? You got some great stuff here for people to check out. By the way, I just wanted to mention there's a slight difference between what happened over in the UK where Threads aired on one night and then the next second night they aired a documentary about Mm -hmm. nuclear winter followed by a their version of a viewpoint, which was another talking heads. It was just a bunch of, of, you know, apparatchiks and wonks um, talking to each other and trying to argue from different vantage points. There were no members of the audience there. Hmm. And so it's kind of fascinating to compare that BBC talk show to Viewpoint and how, you know, much more powerful the Viewpoint was at letting people in the audience stand up and ask questions. It was kind of disturbing and and at um, least at least uh abc was able to get more of a theatrical run and showed the day after a few more times on tv threads was uh if you didn't watch it the first time you weren't going to get that forever but it still, had, right. still had quite of an impact on people yeah yeah well i think it's also important to know that that's why in an odd way abc wound up putting the day after in one night which was a three-hour movie instead of a two by two i think it would have completely lost yeah, its great choice the on their night. part um, so here's my choices, but I'm going to add yet a fifth. So let's start where it all began for me. Richard Rhodes making the atomic bomb to me was such an, I mean, won the Pulitzer and it's just an amazing way of understanding history around this through the lens of the people involved. So you see, you find out what these scientists actually physically look like and they mm-hmm. turn out to be human beings. They're not superhero characters in a book and they're not some sort of mythological figure. They're actually real human beings wrestling with the fate of the planet. I think there's nothing, to me, it was a page turner. It was better than any screenplay I've ever read. And it's it's, um, it's pretty long too, but it does flow really well. Oh my God, you can't believe it. You get to each page and you're like, and then what happens? And then what happens? And you're like, oh wait, no, this isn't fiction. This is real life. And this um, is the first of, I think, four books he did. Um, yeah. yeah, Dark Sun. Uh, I forget what the third one is, but Arsenal Folly is the last one. My second book recommendation, I convinced this publisher to do a graphic novel about the first atomic bomb called Trinity, a graphic history of the first atomic bomb. I didn't even get my name in it. I just simply was talking to this guy who publishes graphic novels. And he goes, why don't we do that? And I'm like, yeah. And we used that graphic novel to get History Channel to pay for that little Mm -hmm. experiment of documentation. But what I'm even more proud of is is that book has gone on to be published and gone through many different publishing runs. 
because it's very popular in the classroom and it's being shown in museums and 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 in in the context of these larger debates but reaching of new audience and this goes back to again it's it's the medium and the message and the messenger um yeah well i'll just say this i I recently cleared off my bookshelf because the kid is now grabbing all the books and pulling them off the shelf and i only have one row left of books uh that are nuke books anymore and those two are both on their trinity and the richard rhodes book so one thank you for getting trinity make it's such a i love reading that um and then the richard rhodes books are must reads for anybody so maybe one day you'll um, get up the courage to do an episode about Hiroshima Monomore because I think in the framework of it being this radical uh, uh, attempt to blend documentary and drama in a way that um, uh, is meant to have an even larger impact, I think there's something quite profound. Only if that. you come, come, um, come back on here when you're free to talk about it. I love that. Uh, and that brings me back to TV movies, particularly those 70s movies um, that were radically showing uh, social issues. I mean, the one, the first most successful TV movie was That Certain Summer in 1973 that dared to show a happily married gay couple whose teenage son had rejected him for being gay. And it was sympathetic to the gay couple's characters, who, by the way, was inspired by real-world ABC executives, mm-hmm. And it was greenlit by Barry Diller, who was the head of the TV movie division at the time. TV movies in the 70s and 80s and all the way to Chernobyl today have been these pockets of profound intervention in larger cultural, sociocultural, and political issues that have rarely ever been defined as such, which is why I I take on this, this topic in this book and my next book, which is called Producing to Power, um, um, and before I leave the recommendation, Beth Fisher is a historian who wrote the book, The Reagan Reversal, where she lays out how Reagan was an anecdotal thinker who understood the world by watching Hollywood storytelling. That was how he learned and, and carved out his policy and ideological position was in response to having seen these movies. So it is, it's not the argument that I make in the book that the day after changed Reagan's mind. Mm-hmm but that Reagan's mind was often deeply influenced by Hollywood storytelling. And then, so then the last is, is the next book project after this one is Producing to Power, which is basically a, a written with one of the world's leading TV scholars, Jonathan Gray at the University of Wisconsin. But it's really a book about, okay, who are these storytellers, whether they're the network executives, the film studio executives, or marketing executives, or the writers, producers, directors, or the creators, influencers, gamers, and vloggers on our cell phone who have found a way to use media technology to change the world. What do they do? What are those strategies that they figured out? Despite the fact that these are all operating within commercial systems and political systems in which policy says you can and cannot talk about certain things depending on which government you're operating under. Um, So everything what's going on with Russia and Chernobyl to what's happening in in Turkey and and uh, uh, around social media, um, they wanna they wanna stop it. They wanna control it. They wanna limit it. Um, so, you know, I'll leave you with the last comment, I guess, which is that you know, in Australia, they're fighting over whether or not Rupert Murdoch's news corps should be paid for the news that Facebook puts online. And in um, authoritarian regimes, they're desperately trying to keep social media from being shut down because it's the only 
weapon they have to change the world. Well, selfishly, I want you to finish the day after book first because that is a, a new one that I want to read. But now this other one, mm, I want to read that one too. So good <laughs> luck to you very much in getting all of these activities done. Um, and thanks so much. I know you're on Twitter at producing the number two power. Um, anywhere else people can find some of your, your writings pretty easily in case they're uh, inspired to check out more of like, some of your past books and things. Well, sure. Um, I've written a few articles for the conversation, which then went viral on sites like Salon about the rise of creators and uh, social media entrepreneurs advocating for the left and for progressive causes and mm -hmm. political activism. An article that's listed on the World Health Organization right now that I wrote last year about uh, the parallels between the COVID crisis and the AIDS crisis through the lens of Susan Sontag and metaphors. Ooh. And uh, for whatever reason, that seems to be tapping a huge nerve out there and people are really super into um, and it, it just every day it keeps trending. I'm like, what? Very I'm cool. viral. I didn't know how that happened. So there's a couple of places to look. Well, thanks very much, David. I really appreciate you coming on here. Uh, we talked for uh, about three hours, but that's, you know what? Things like Threads, our Threads episode was three hours. This is one of those that deserves just as much attention. So I'm glad that you were here and, and patient. I think people who listen to this are going to really get a lot out of it. Uh, so thanks again so much for, for your generous time here. Uh, it's actually been very clarifying for me because I'm still working on the book. And I, uh, great. I, I, having this really crystallizes why this book is even more relevant today than it ever has been. Excellent. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or you want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, either some of the nuke stuff or, hey, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, skeletons do become visible when exposed to prompt radiation. Uh, a couple ways you can contact the show. I am on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. I have a website, supercriticalpodcast.com, where we've got a bunch of great resources here. All of the things that uh, David recommended, we'll have links to those on the site. And I also respond to email, sometimes a little bit slow because of the baby and other things these days, but supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer and David Craig. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. <laughs>